The Derek and Mike Podcast. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate you being here. Hit us up on Twitter at Derek and Mike Pod. We're on Instagram as Derek and Mike or on our website, DerekandMike.com. My name is Mike and this is my boy, Derek. What's up, Mike? What's up, everybody? Derek, I am over the moon excited to welcome our guests to the show today. Um, Rachel Lance is here with us today and she is the author, author of Honestly, one of my favorite books, um, In the Waves, My Quest to Solve the Mystery of a Civil War Submarine. And um, I love this book for a lot of reasons, and I can't wait to dig into uh, a whole bunch of them and learn more about Rachel. And uh, we're stoked to have you on the show today, Rachel. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. I thought it was uh, kind of funny that you said you were over the moon, because you know what puts people over the moon? It's explosions. 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 Yeah. We're, we're going to talk a lot about explosions today. You are a, is it, is it oversimplifying to say you are an explosions expert? It's not oversimplifying. I do a couple other things as well, uh, but all of it is tied together with like kind of extreme environments. I like to say it's what happens to people when we go places and do things we really shouldn't. <laughs> so, so there's also a little underwater physiology in my life. There's some outer space physiology in my life, but essentially I'm trying to work our way towards cyborgs and, you know, just oh. basically being immortal. Yeah. Well, well okay. So simple stuff. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, just your yeah. basics. Wow. <laughs> that, that's an interesting way to look at it. Cause when you study explosions, obviously expo- explosions don't happen in a vacuum. There's, mm-hmm. they're in a, in an environment and things occur as a result of the explosion. So it, forces you to or allows you to study all sorts of other elements that that affect whatever it is you're you're trying to study. Yeah, that's one of the really unfortunate parts about studying explosions is that every single one there's usually something terrible that happened. Yeah. On occasion, you get what I call like a happy explosion, which is, uh, you know, where like a terrorist injures themselves and only themselves. <laughs> like, and oh, we good. Can all, this is fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> this is your best case scenario. And we can yeah. all make jokes about that one specific case. <laughs> but for the most part, like it's a little bit of a sad field because you're looking at people who have unfortunately been injured or killed. Whether yeah. that's in combat, that's in accident dental explosions like industrial accents or that's in like terrorist related bombings things like that do you have a specific a specific field or types of explosions like that whether it's battle or industrial that you try to focus on or just kind of anything as long as there's an explosion that's that's your field <laughs> as long as there are explosions, that's kind of my field. The most useful research, in my opinion, focuses on combat-related explosions because that gives you a population that you're trying to, to help. Sure. You're trying to help these active duty military personnel and right. they're in a zone where they don't really have a lot of control over it. They don't have a lot of control over whether or not they need to use an explosion. And then even if they do, a lot of the times the immediate need for survival is going to take precedence. So they're like, all right, well, this might give me some TBI, but 
that guy's about to shoot me in the head. So you kind of, or they kind of like pick the lesser evil. So I, I really find those the most satisfying because I feel like I can actually make a contribution there in terms of giving them better protection or giving right. them better information about their blasts, stuff, stuff, stuff like that. Right. For and that sure. was, that was so interesting in your book. Um, that was one of the things I, I, Never, never would have guessed. Obviously, probably many people would never have guessed it. But that Kevlar actually can negatively contribute to uh, concussions and brain injuries. And uh, you know, it's kind of like, how does that factor in? How how do you come to that conclusion? How did yeah. you come to that, that conclusion? Well, even? Yeah, I didn't come to that conclusion. I can't take credit for that one. Um, that's people before me. But yeah, that's Kevlar started being used because it's an amazing material. I, I'm a big nerd, so I should probably warn you guys about that. <laughs> I can prattle off about like the way materials respond to stuff for days. But um Kevlar obviously is used for bullets, and the goal there is to stop bullets. Well, America started using it for bulletproof vests, and then accidentally we found out it protects the lungs against explosives. And I don't mean shrapnel. I mean, like, literally the shockwave. Kevlar reduces the amount of shockwave that gets transmitted into the body. And so what ended up happening, it kind of, for me, puts a little bit of positive spin on traumatic brain injury, which I know is, like, sort of a horrible thing to say, but hear me out. Because when you see someone now with a blast-related traumatic brain injury, what that essentially means is they survived a bomb that should have killed them. And they survived it because they were wearing their bulletproof vest, which protected their lungs. And so it's obviously a terrible injury type. Nobody deserves to kind of live with that. But at the same time, like these are people that science has saved. They're still alive. Like it's not perfect. We're we're kind of more, but you know, it's a step in the right direction. Right. You do such a great job of explaining complicated um, ideas and and science in, in the book and and um one of them is basically how uh shock waves or pressure waves um cause things like blast lung like really common um explosion caused trauma that that kills a lot of people and i think before you got into how um the use of kevlar increased the incidence of brain injury you had talked about a situation where i don't remember what country it was but someone was using um bulletproof vests that was made that were made of like rubber or something and yes. that was actually those people who were wearing those vests were showing higher rates of blast lung or internal uh, shockwave caused trauma. And then they found out that it was actually amplifying the shockwaves inside of their vest. Yeah, I know. How crazy is that? Yeah, you yikes. put you put thick bulletproof material between you and a bomb and it makes it worse. Like, yeah, that's crazy. insane. It took a while for people to figure out that that was what was happening. Right. But that was in England. So that was during the troubles in Northern Ireland. Okay. And so that was the study of the British soldiers and specifically just them. So they were really only studying the one side. But they had this type of body armor that was made out of rubber that was actually increasing the amount of the blast that got into the chests of these soldiers. And so they were they were dying of blast lungs. So they were just falling over with no external injury, which is a thing that definitely happens in normal explosions. But also, like, it was happening a lot more often than it should have been in that specific right. case. Most of the English soldiers I'm, wearing these rubber vests. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, I'm glad you liked my explanations. That's definitely the hardest part of writing this well, stuff. I bet, especially for someone like you. Because you strike yeah. me as someone who's very casual and cool, but you're also very nice. smart and very well-educated in your field. So I imagine it's 
easy to just spin off into scientific lingo or something that would go right over the heads of, of other people out of the industry. And I think in the book, you do a great job of melding the two where you give us all of that really detailed info. And then you give us really easy to to understand um, analogies and descriptions of things that made a lot of that like super understandable and and really like hit home where you can really um, like feel uh, what what happens there. And it makes a lot of it super tragic. And I know you talk about having to remove yourself from some of the Mm -hmm. obvious tragedy in in the field that you you know, work in. But like you said, you're always doing good. And by, by understanding more of how these things work and, and how they affect humans, we can ultimately do better and, and save more people. Um, so it's a great thing and must be, have you always been someone who can kind of look at the facts within a tragedy or, or, a, a, a hard situation and focus on those? Or did you have to kind of learn to, in a, in a way, I guess, desensitize yourself to, some of the sadness surrounding kind of what you do? That's a really good question. And I honestly don't know the answer. Um, I think that for me, the way that I've approached things has always been as someone who's looking for a way to make it better, which sounds really cheesy as hell, but I think that makes it easier to sort of sift through that pile of tragedy. Because yeah. if your goal is to like create some kind of improvement, then you have like a hopeful, optimistic outcome. Right. And I don't remember necessarily having like any specific moments where I had to sit down and think like, okay, I need to disconnect a little so that I can do my job. But I do remember even in high school, like learning about really severe cardiac failure. And this was one of the things that got me hooked on kind of studying like the heart and lungs, which is, was my lead in into blast trauma because the lungs are the most easily damaged. But I remember learning about like very severe heart failure and these engineers trying to build a total artificial heart that was going to be like a substitute for heart transplants, right? Obviously, we have organ shortages. Um, I'm a registered organ donor. I hope everyone's a registered organ donor. But these engineers were trying to take like a different approach to the same problem. And there was one specific case and he was very early on patient and he lived for five years with this total artificial heart prototype. Obviously, yeah, obviously those things are not like a common thing yet. I was in high school at the time, so it was a while ago, but um, they're not a common thing, but it was still like, you gave one person five years of life back. Like that guy had kids, he had grandkids. Like he got five years of pretty decent life, it sounded like, and that made a huge difference. Yeah, Yeah, it made a huge difference to one person. And also it was like this stepping stone to hopefully helping way more people like him down the road as well. So in my opinion, like that was sort of an introduction to me. And that's always the perspective I've had where it's like, yes, you learn about the worst day in someone's life, but you do it with this mindset of like, what can I bring to, to fixing this, preventing it, helping out. Right. Right. And then your explosion, um, experience came in. So was that going on at the same time that you were investigating the heart and lungs? issues or was that like uh, ancillary? Or- yeah, yeah. So essentially what happened was um I had gone back, I had worked for the Navy. So I worked for the Navy as a mechanical engineer for several years. And I was essentially doing that job because I wanted to find a way to get paid for scuba diving, um, which I didn't really do a lot of at work, but like we were on the beach so I could go at lunch and I was building diving equipment. Nice. So it really tied into like the lungs 
thing. And it was super fun because I was in a machine shop down days. I was like testing other days. It was a lot of variety. And they offered me the chance to go back to graduate school. Duke University has this um, massive hyperbaric chamber complex. And hyperbaric chambers are thick-walled chambers where you can intentionally increase the pressure inside. And that's how we simulate the underwater environment. Because obviously, you go down under the ocean, you hear about the pressure. We're doing that inside a hospital at Duke instead. So when the Navy asked me if I wanted to go back to get my PhD, I... First of all, like threw up in my mouth a little bit because I was really over school at that point. I was oh. like, I don't want to go back to school anymore. Don't make yeah. me. But you know, they're offering to pay for it. So you kind of got, okay, okay, okay. But um, so that's what I did. But I, I exclusively applied to Duke and I was secretly sitting there. I was like, if I don't get into this one place I've applied to, I'm just not going. Um, but I got, <laughs> you're like, I, I can officially in. say I tried. Yeah. Yeah. So I can officially say I tried, but I got in. So I came up here. Year, um, and I was originally working more on heart stuff, but then like a couple doors down, there was a group that was studying explosives. And I think I would just like walking past and I would hear them talking about bombs. And I was like, yes, this <laughs> is where I live now. <laughs> that's the room where I want to be. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I'd like to pretend there was a lot more intention and like planning, but realistically, like I just kind of go to where the shiny things are. Oh, so it's, it's funny how those things appear in your life though. You yeah. know, it's yeah. like you, you, you go down a path and something, um, presents you an opportunity to do that and then you you take it and then always almost you find something else <laughs> while you're doing that <laughs> yeah and uh that, i mean that's happened to me in my life a bunch of times too where like i would i went to drafting school a uh, horrible drafter but i love computers and i love programming then i went into programming it's kind of you know the same kind of Deal. Yeah, and then you made the obvious jump to podcasting. Oh, so, okay. yeah, how yeah, did you yeah, guys get here? Uh, <laughs> well, Derek also spent some younger yeah. years studying explosives, but in a, in a much less um, you know structured or scholastic way. It was more. I do. Uh, <laughs> Wait, Derek, hold I, up your I, hands. I a... Hold up your hands. You got it. You got I, all. I you got have, all ten. Good job. <laughs> I have them all. Yeah, um, yeah. But, I, but I am. I have been a blast victim. Oh, really? Um, of of my own. Oh, okay. Uh, re- reconnaissance or is that the right word to say? stupidity uh, <laughs> yeah so uh yeah i figured out that the story would probably come up and you know being a blast expert how can i not tell you this right i'm i'm so, dying to know <laughs> yeah okay so dumb kid um yeah. i think i was maybe 18 at the time maybe 17 and my friend and I were really into model rockets. We loved to uh, shoot model rockets. And uh, we also loved to just cause mayhem. And, um, so, <laughs> this is so, like a general rule. Yeah, <laughs> this yeah, isn't chaotic enough. <laughs> yeah. This, so I, I started cutting open model rocket engines and um dumping it out and then playing with the different you know on one end they have like the the fast burning core and another end they have a little bit of smoke they the so i started messing with that and i also put it in a glass bottle oh um it was probably, going south real fast Derek. Yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> it goes south even more here yeah. in a minute um put it in a glass bottle pretty thick glass bottle um you know, wanted to blow it up. Hey, let's, let's go blow this thing up. I, I put a lid on it. Um, I put a, uh, I tried to use one of those, you know, those 
uh, comedy candles where you you try to blow them out and you can't. Oh, that yeah. was my mm-hmm. idea of a wick. That so, was your okay. Okay. Yeah. So it's a solid plan. It's a fail safe way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you also have to Min- wait for like ten minutes for it to burn down. <laughs> You're both patient and yeah. an agent of chaos. <laughs> so, then I yeah. wasn't. Yeah. Okay. Then I wasn't patient. Okay. And then, then I, I thought, oh well let me just let me just teeter this match on top of and then when it burns across, then yeah. it'll no. Yeah. Also, Ooh. like, put your face like right there. That's the best plan. Yeah. While you're while you're carefully balancing <laughs> yeah. the match on it and ignition. And t- to this day, up. yeah, Derek needs to have a beard to hide the job. Yeah. 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 No. Yeah. I do. I do have a nick right here. Um, it blew up. My face was right there. The blast opened my mouth. Like I could feel it go, and then. Um, Boy, I don't want to make that stupid face again on camera. Uh, <laughs> I really actually, time, I, missed it. I would like it if you paused <laughs> and then let us describe it. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Too bad Zoom yeah. didn't do one of those great, like, glitch things where he freezes for a second. Exactly. Right <laughs> so for the purposes of the podcast, you have to imagine that Derek has just seen a ghost, but he's also a cartoon character. (laughs) (laughs) Mouth stuck open. Uh, And it it felt like I got punched in the face with a really big fist. Like, and I felt my eyes go back. Like it pushed, it pushed everything in. It pushed, it was not pleasant. And I was so, uh, I mean, I, I I went into shock um, and then I got cut here and I was bleeding all over my shirt. It was so, it, it, it felt so, I didn't know what to expect. Right. And I, I literally felt like my first thought was, I don't know if I have a face. Wow. And That's actually a really fair first thought. I'm quite surprised at how much face you have. Like one saw cut on the chin for like a glass container is pretty awesome. Wow. You came out of that pretty lucky. I, I thought I heard so all lucky. your stories. I've never heard this yeah. one. Yeah, you know, it's not not my my proudest moment. Uh, no. but I also got two glass shards right right above both eyes. Like, That's impressive you didn't have eye injuries. Yeah. Could have hit my eye. Yeah. yeah. And, then, and then I got another one in the leg. But now we did this in the middle of a neighborhood because we were smart kids. And um, the next day, the neighbor told us that they thought that somebody shot a shotgun at their house because <laughs> of the, the shards of the shards of glass just pelted their entire house. Holy crap. And, <laughs> yeah. Dude. And um, yeah, it was uh, it was scary. The shock was actually this one of the scariest things because I was like shaking and I was just freaking out. And um and I was losing blood and uh, I didn't go to the hospital, but, um, I was okay after that, even though I probably should have got stitches in my leg and I probably still have some glass in my body. Wow. Uh, but <laughs> carrying that <laughs> around it is. It'll be all right. <laughs> if it's not itching and it's not infected, it's fine. Doctors leave people and stuff all this time. Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 Cell phones. That's yeah. crazy. Scalpels. So. I want to know, yeah, I want to know the follow up because if you have a facial wound, you're bleeding like crazy, right? So who did you have to go admit what you done to and how did they respond? <laughs> so. Oh, so you mean my, like my mother? Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. Did you yeah, have to my- inform a parent? <laughs> 
you know, I, I hid as much as I could. She found the <laughs> bloody shirt, uh, that I stuck, I stuffed away, uh, not so casually into my drawer. And then I had a big gaping, um, I probably had a, a cut on my leg like that big. It definitely needed stitches and I, I hit it. And, uh, luckily, you know, I, I got out of that, that way and no, no cops were involved somehow. You know, yeah. this is the 80s. Uh, this was, and yeah. in the eighties, when your kid yeah, comes home with 90s. you know a, a bloody chin and a cut on his leg, it's kind of like, eh, eh, walk it off. Yeah, yeah right? now it would be like nine one one. You find this like massively bloody shirt, and his parents are definitely sitting there, like, well, either he had a cut, in which case he fixed it himself, or he murdered someone, in which case he fixed it himself. So, like, <laughs> no, we're not going to yeah. ask. We'll just, we don't want to know. We, the less, yeah, like plausible deniability. The less information I have, the better. <laughs> Yeah, we're not going to involve the authorities. You know his mom one. was putting away socks later on and found it and just went like, huh, no, no, I'm not even going to. Yeah. Either that, that or right she back. burned it for you because oh. she's that hardcore a mom. And she's like, this is not how you hide evidence, son. So. Yeah, no, she, I, I think, yeah, I remember her bringing it up to me oh in, my a, God. In, a, in a way like, what is this shirt? Like, and she she wants to know what happened and I don't, you know, she probably is not going to ever know until she listens to this podcast. Actually, I don't think <laughs> she's going to tell her. No, she's going to say, I remember that no. shirt. I always wondered what happened. Yeah. Man. You're just going to yeah. get a text message from your mom with like 18 exclamation yeah. points. Yeah. Probably so. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's some, man. I think, I think in a way she didn't want to know like what you were saying. It's kind of yeah. like, well, if it's this, I don't want to know. And if it's that, I don't want to know either. So yeah. Wait, like, bloody you know, shirt in the back okay. of the drawer. Uh, <laughs> mom's the word. Exactly. Yeah. So you felt. What, what do you think that millisecond uh, blast speed was? That that must have. It, it wasn't seven milliseconds, right? Because I would be dead. Is that well? So yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to burst your story, but it's yeah. unlikely that you had a proper shockwave. So okay. the accelerants that are in those rock. I I am also a founding member of the high school rocket club. Oh, okay. um, yeah. So, which later dissolved because one of the teachers involved turned out to be sleeping with a student, but that's a whole other Whoa. story. Yeah. Yes, it was. Uh, but, yeah, no, it was me and my brother and then two of his friends. There were only four of us. So we were pretty much the nerds. Um, but those, those, that was also my entree into explosives, I guess. But yeah. uh, those rocket engines are not, they're made of what we would call low explosive material. So they burn very quickly, but they don't necessarily burn quickly enough to make a shockwave unless you have somehow confined them in an extreme way. So it's theoretically possible to get a shockwave out of that kind of stuff, but it's really hard. It takes a very deliberate engineering to do it. And I'm not going to tell people how, just in case there are other Derek's listening, but um, a glass container is not enough. So you more than likely had a high level, like a pressure wave. But the good news about that is while it can throw a lot of shrapnel and it's definitely going to projectile a lot of glass, at your face um it's not necessarily gonna cause the same types of trauma so it's not necessarily gonna knock you dead except if you have the shrapnel effects now like in the case of the hunley if it goes fast enough if it's like one to two millisecond like i said then you can have the same effects but that still requires like a pretty specific scenario so you know i don't want to say you were safe because you clearly weren't. You were clearly very lucky. Yeah. But like yeah. you were just gonna have a different set of injuries. 
So yeah. I'm glad um, we're not seeing you today with like a pirate eye. So yeah, oh no, gosh. really. Yeah, I, I am. Although pirate eye would be kind of cool. Yeah, like, maybe not something you want to rock all the time. <laughs> it would be. It would be fun, yeah. like exactly one day a year on Halloween. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you really yeah, don't right. need to lose an eye for that. You could just put a patch over a totally fine functional eye. And, uh, That's get, totally uh, true. That's get, the, totally. get the same. Get the same effect. Yeah. <laughs> Mike, you're so much less hardcore. So. <laughs> I thought I was crazy, and I used yeah, to blow stuff up. I need up you with, to dial up the intensity. So. I used to. Uh, I used to blow stuff up with Derek back in the day, and nothing crazy. But we always looked at Derek as like our explosive expert. Like he knew how to make uh-huh. pipe bombs, and he had he had uh, gunpowder, and he had all the stuff. And uh, maybe that's why you never told us the story. You wanted to preserve your standing as our as our group's explosives expert. And if we knew you, you know, blew up a glass bottle in your face, maybe we would have started questioning your authority. Yeah, you wouldn't do, <laughs> you wouldn't build the things that I asked yeah, you to build. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, wait, so this gets even better. So Derek wasn't even doing it. He was telling you what to do. Oh, so I he learned... He yeah. learned his lesson, is what I'm hearing. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Mike, he he Mike, activated a tribe this. of enthusiasts. Yeah. He's like, hey, guys, I'm great at this, and I know what I'm doing, so let me explain to you how to do this so I can stand at a safe distance and watch. Yeah. That was his plan. I think <laughs> the only idea I gave you guys was, and when I say you guys, Rachel, what I mean is, like, I was kind of the older one in the neighborhood, uh-huh. and uh-huh. they were a little bit younger, so, like, they were more friendly. They being uh, Mike and my brother, Ron, and then that gang – and I think I gave them the idea how to do the, uh, was it the Mentos or the two liter bottle? Yeah, oh, that one, yeah. Uh, dry ice. Yeah, we used to make yeah, dry, dry ice bombs yeah. and stuff. We used yeah. plastic though, so they would come apart and look really cool when they were all split and, and ripped open, but you know, plastic doesn't really uh, projectile and kill you like glass. Yeah, like you, I mean, you still don't want to be very close to it, but it's no. definitely not the same as glass for sure. Yeah, yeah. So. wow. So you you mentioned the difference between an actual shock wave and a pressure wave, and yes. it it takes a hell of a lot to make an actual shock wave, right? Because it sounded yes. like through your studies of the Hunley blast, it turns out that that was more likely a pressure wave, a giant, super destructive, deadly pressure wave, but not an actual shock wave. Right, and just to clarify the difference, so the shock wave is a traveling pressure wave, so it's pressure that's flowing outward. You can see this in a lot of videos of explosions and stuff like that you see like that ripple but with the shock wave for it to be technically called a shock wave it needs to go from the zero pressure to the absolute peak pressure in literally zero seconds so it's a completely vertical line whereas with a pressure wave that can have a little bit of slope so with the case of the Henley, we see a little bit of slope on the order of like one to two milliseconds. So we're talking one to two thousandths of a second, but that's still enough to disqualify it from being a shockwave. The shockwave has like gotcha. very strict definitions because you have like this whole other world of physics and I won't get too excited about it, but it's real nerdy. And so shockwaves get like their own field of physics that blows my mind every day um pressure waves are a little bit more normal acting so they act a little bit more like regular sound okay yeah so that was the case with the hunley most of these things like black powder rocket engines things like that they are explosives but they're making um they're making high high increase rate of increased pressure waves instead of appropriate shocks right okay, okay. yeah so due to the slower burn of black powder like conflagration right wow yes yes Um, you nailed it yeah i love it um so so, yeah 
that deflagration. Was super, yeah. Deflagration. That's yeah. But it is a, it is a conflagration. Good You're try. not wrong. You okay. got it right. There's just also another word. So I felt okay. like I throw it in there too. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, so, yeah. so that was a, um, based on all the evidence that we have a 200 pound load of gunpowder, right? Yes. It was about the size of a beer keg. So that's like the visual I guess people. Man, we used to make yeah. pipe bombs and they were, they were pretty damn big. So it's hard to imagine uh, <laughs> the explosion of, and I don't think we ever used true black powder. Is there a difference, uh, a, a big difference in explosion size on black powder versus gunpowder? Um, it depends on how you build it. Okay. Not really. They're, they're roughly comparable. So it's more about confinement. Yeah. Yeah, for for those low explosive stuff, it's more about confinement. So, I mean, like, both of those really, if you, like, spread it out in a line and you light a match to one end, you're not going to get an explosion. You're going to get, like, a little cartoonish burn from one end to the other, like you're in an old movie. But um, Which you kind of experienced, and you told a hilarious story when you guys were tackling the problem of confinement, trying to get the right um, charge size. You guys went into a little local mom-and-pop. Uh, hardware <laughs> store at the recommendation of Burt Pitt, right? So he let you yes. guys use his pond to blow up stuff. And yeah. uh, you weren't quite getting a big enough explosion. And so you went in to kind of work on the confinement problem. And I love the way you explained that um, the uh, you you paid the human who uh, fed the owner. <laughs> I thought that was great. Yeah. The dog yeah, who owned the store. That store was really cool. I wish it was closer so I could go back. But it was essentially <laughs> like a hardware store just... And I mean, you had to be a local to know it was there. So like you really, it was like a guy and I think it was like attached to his house and you just walk in and you could tell you're in the country in the best possible way because the whole place is like fishing equipment and hunting equipment. And it's really like not even an entire hardware store. You're behind a counter and then like he goes and gets what you need. So it's an old school setup. Yeah, but he had this massive black German shepherd and you could tell that dog knew exactly what it was doing like that dog was a guard dog and that dog would mess you up if it wanted to and so that dog just like stared at me the entire time i was in there and i'm sitting there like i promise you dog i'm not doing anything illegal i know i'm buying stuff that looks sketchy but i promise you it's not illegal he's looking at you going you ain't from around these parts are you yeah he's like you got the wrong accent (laughs) (laughs) did did the list of stuff that you gave the owner of that store make him raise an eyebrow at all or no oh, no there are no <laughs> no nobody raises an eyebrow for any reason in the deep south man this is uh this is north carolina country <laughs> that's um <laughs> you can do whatever you want if you're on your own land or in this case burt pitt's private land you could do whatever you want oh my gosh um, there yeah so they and nobody's gonna question it so there were there were times when i should have been I should have been questioned and I put those in there on purpose. Like I think I put one of them in there where I was buying a really big container. Everybody has seen these. They just might now the, not know the name. I didn't know the name, yeah. but it was, it's an IBC container. So they're like the massive, like five foot by five foot sort of cubes with metal bars wrapped around and they use for shipping liquid. Okay. So I was buying one of these IBC containers to like, 
blow some stuff up in it because I just needed some place to hold water in like a more laboratory environment and just test my gauges. So I was doing very, very small explosions just to test the gauges. And I was so tired and I just straight up, like this was a guy on a farm who had like a mountain of them out back somewhere on the, in the field. And he was just like, had them on Craigslist. And every time someone wanted one, you just pick it up. So I was out there with this borrowed truck and I was exhausted. I'm in the middle of nowhere, North Carolina. And I'm on this farm. Like he's let me drive just right out into the fields to pick up the IBC container. I'm ratchet strapping it down into the bed of the truck. And he keeps asking me what I want this container for. Now, normally I've gotten pretty good at not answering a question. Sure. Like I'll do a, I'll do like a who's on first routine and I'll just like dance around it and kind of maybe use gender stereotypes a little bit to my advantage and be like, I don't know what it's for. Like, but this one, I just didn't have the energy for it. I just told, I was just like, I was like, man, I'm going to blow some stuff up in this. And he was like, all right, well, if you break it, there's more. Like, okay. No problem. <laughs> Yeah, I'm like you. You should be calling the cops right now. Like you have no idea who I am. I got you from Craigslist. <laughs> like, you like, know, all right, that's not yeah. the weirdest one I've heard. Have a good day. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. It made me really question what other people had said for yeah. picking up these. What, 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 yeah, that's a good question. What are other people buying these things for? Yeah, I don't know, man. man. But now I need to find out. So. It's, it's amazing. It's hard for me to wrap my head around the the freedom to use guns and blow stuff up and and uh buy you know indestructible basins for no reason at all because i'm in (laughs) california and you can't do anything in california yeah i mean it has pros and cons um i myself am not i i've never understood the appeal of guns as a hobby like i'm not trying to judge anyone else if that's what they want to do that's fine it just doesn't appeal to me like it it does it's it's something I'll do for work on occasion. Like we'll go to the firing range if we need to fire a specific type of gun and, and that's okay. But I've never really understood it as a hobby. Yeah. Um, but living in North Carolina, you sort of see the ups and the downs. Um, uh, upside, I got to do some really cool science without having to jump through a lot of bureaucratic hoops. Sure. Um, downside, you know, I live out in unincorporated territory um where it's legal to fire guns on your own property and so sometimes that's what my neighbors are doing that day and that's how did you which can get really loud but yeah um, yeah. how did you escape the accent there i'm actually originally from detroit so i didn't grow up here oh yeah yeah i i did come to north carolina a ton my dad is from rural north carolina so when i was growing up i came i was down here at least once a year spending time with my grandparents and um i always really loved it like the western part of the state is just so beautiful it's these like rolling forested mountains it's gorgeous and i always love coming down Oh yeah, so you're yeah. you're like the same same deal. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. it's beautiful. It is beautiful. It's so gorgeous. It is. Um, I've been to Charlotte so just just oh, for a yeah. brief trip, and I, I was blown away by how green it was. It was just yes. I mean, damn near like a jungle as you're flying over it. Like wow, it is. Oh lush. yeah, it's so. It's green. amazing. I think it's so beautiful. Yeah. It's all green. It's all forested. We have crazy oak forests everywhere. Yeah. Um, I pretty much live in the woods, which I like. It's a subdivision, but. The lots are massive and most of them are, are wild. Like I don't have to mow a lot, which I really nice. appreciate. But, nice. Do you need irrigation? Yeah. Do you have sprinklers or does it rain enough? I have sprinklers, but they just sort of came with the house. Um, I don't, I don't turn them on. Huh. So yeah, wow. it, it rains enough. That's mind blowing to me. 
Every- yeah, yeah. <laughs> if we don't water everything a- twice a day, it shrivels and dies. Yeah. Oh God, yeah. The California for sure, yeah. for sure. Do you try to maintain actual grass, or have you given up? Uh, you we just do. like here's some here's some pretty rocks. So we have young kids, and I think having a lawn is important. And before yeah. we had kids, we were dog owners for like 14 years, so it was really mm-hmm. important always to have real grass. We thought about doing the artificial stuff, but it's just not the same. And our dogs yeah. really loved like rooting around and obviously doing their business in the grass, but just playing in the grass and rolling around. And, um, uh, they loved it. So we always kept our grass for them. And then we had kids and now I think it's crucial to, you know, we have like a little slide out there and they go play in the grass and do the, the the little slip and slide thing and all that. You can play some catch and yeah. Yeah. We do a lot of that. So I think once they're older and don't care about it, then yeah, we're going, we're going low maintenance. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Arizona escaping. Arizona is just scary. Totally. The pretty rocks. Arizona knows how to do it. When I go through Arizona, you see beautiful landscaping that's all no water or low water. And they do a great job of it. It looks gorgeous. But in California, we can't figure it out. Like, we're desperately clinging to this this image of grass, and we can't because it's, like, desert for sure here. So, I don't know. Like, we, we need to, like, figure it out. We have Why droughts. do you think that is? Do you think it's because so many people in California are from other places? Um... I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 I think it's kind of like a California mentality of everybody else should save water but me. I'm important and I want beautiful grass. <laughs> I agree with that. I, I think it's that. Yeah. And I'm not, uh, I'm not happy about that answer, but I think Sell that's it out the California answer. just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I love it here, but Tell I, think, the truth. I think there is some of that. Yeah. Yeah. Every place has its ups and downs. Yeah. So yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> yeah. For sure. So you have some acreage out there, Rachel? Or, or I do. Yeah. My nice. dogs, oh, my man. dogs have a lot of forests that they can play in. So they don't actually oh, have man. access to grass, but they have access to a lot of forests. Even better. Um, I'm on about ha- I'm yeah. on half an acre, which to me, like coming from California, you know, I lived over there where Mike was yeah, at. Half an acre is basically and, a farm. Uh, I feel like I'm in heaven. Yeah. Really? Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm yeah. like growing food. I'm like my, you know, I got a pool. I'm like, what is going? Yeah. It's, oh yeah. It's wonderful. That is awesome. I, I would love to be able to grow more food, but, um, we have some pretty voracious deer. So like living in the woods, oh. they'll, they pull everything out. They just pull it straight up from the ground. So. Wow. That's my obstacle. Also, I'm terrible at like remembering the plants are there and taking yeah. care of them. Yeah. I get like really motivated one day and then I just forget yeah. about it. I do the same, so, sadly, yeah. as uh, I used to love gardening, but then when we had kids, now I'm very much more focused and busy with that. And I do the thing yeah. where I'm like, we'll spend a whole weekend like planting a whole spring garden and I'll get the boys out there and we'll be digging and planting together and all that's great. And then maintaining it is a totally different story. Like, yeah. Uh, you know, weeding and, My, and yeah, all that. No, that that uh, falls way down on the to-do list. Absolutely. The weeding is the worst. That's yeah. the worst. Yeah. My brother yeah. has convinced his kids that it's a game. They're three, so they're, like, still young enough that they can be lied to. And, like, <laughs> so he, you know, it's a, he's convinced them that weeding is a game. But I don't know what he's going to do once that falls apart and they realize uh, Yeah, they're like, wait a minute. We're just free <laughs> yeah, labor they're like, here. Dad's What's going on? Us. <laughs> yeah, like, this actually sucks. Other kids so. get allowance for this, Dad. What's up? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, exactly. My, my daughter asked me for uh for chores yesterday and she said she comes up to me and she's like big gr- smile gr- uh on her face just grinning daddy can i 
can I have uh, chores <laughs> or <laughs> can I have uh, uh, money? <laughs> and I'm like, do you think, <laughs> can I do chores? And she thinks it's like going to be like happy time. I'm like, yeah, you can do chores. You can get it. But she has no idea <laughs> of the concept of what it's going to, I'm going to. What did you give her? Did you give her something easy to keep her into chores or just like break her hopes right away and, you know. Give her a yeah, ladder and tell her to clean the like splitting wood, you know, yeah. Splitting yeah. Wood. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I've had her help me dig ditches before. <laughs> so, yeah. Did you always give her like the little toy shovel? I was gonna say, like, plastic oh, shovel. Because okay. yeah. yeah. I used to like quote unquote help my dad mow the lawn, but yeah, you know, right. I, like I just follow him with my little toy. But yeah. uh, my boys yeah, do that. They have that lawnmower that makes bubbles, and they'll push that around the backyard. That's one oh, of the greatest shit. toys of all time. That's yeah. like stood the test of generations right, right? there. The and it's training them just like yeah. soon you'll be able to run the big mower. Daddy can't oh, wait. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you've got at least like a seat one year where you can convince them again that this is a fun thing. Oh, and yeah. Before yeah, they yeah. catch on to yeah. you. Until, until so. they're teenagers and then they're just like, yeah, no. Sorry, pops. No, I see through all of your lies. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> By the way, you owe me a lot of back allowance for all those that yeah. free weed pulling I, I did for like a decade. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, my parents never gave us allowance for that. They would always just be like, we feed you. Shut yeah. up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're in the hole every <laughs> month. You owe us. Oh, yeah. And I, I mean, in retrospect, it makes sense. Like, my brother, you can't tell this over Zoom, but my brothers and I are all very big people. And so we ate. I'm surprised we didn't eat them into bankruptcy. So, <laughs> yeah. And you, the amount in your of book, food. You just, in your book, you just, I think you said you, you described yourself as a tomboy. Did you, uh, yeah. you, you, were, you played a lot of sports with your brothers and stuff like at a young age? And, that... Oh, I'm not athletic. I'm just like really into stuff that people always raise an eyebrow at for being a young girl. Um, yeah. yeah. So I, I was very lucky to grow up in a house where they, my parents just let us do whatever we wanted. They supported us very much. And I think that was like, in retrospect, the biggest thing that they've done in my life for me. That's really um, cool. You know, it's, yeah, like I, I yeah, obviously we're talking, like feeding and clothing and they, they physically kept me alive. But I mean, in terms of, of raising me as a method, that's the biggest thing they did for me was just let me be myself. Um, so no, I'm, I'm not very athletic. I'm pretty clumsy. Um, as a person, so team sports don't really go great for me. I do love rock climbing and like running and stuff like that. But, um, when I say tomboy, I'm more meant like I was, you know, in the rocket club, founding yeah, member of the rocket yeah. club freshman year in high school. Um, I was one of only two girls who decided to take, um, they call it like industrial systems, I think was the name, but it was essentially like kind of a machine shop course when I was in the sixth grade and all the other girls took um skills for living which was sewing and cooking and uh yeah so it was there were two girls out of 60 students so just stuff like that where i yeah. i was doing stuff that was considered very conventionally masculine um i hated i still hate blow drying my hair you can't tell this but my hair is wet because <laughs> now i'm an adult i straight up refuse <laughs> and i think my hair dryer has been in the garage for like the last three months because i used it for i used it for a project in the garage <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh that's uh you know so i'm 
like I can do hair and put on, sometimes I'll put on makeup because to me that's just adult face paint. Um, so that can be really fun. I, I love to have normal paint. So it, it's a mixed bag. I own a lot of dresses. I'll sometimes put on makeup, but you know, I'm equally likely to ruin them because I have discovered an interesting bug in the woods and chased it. So, um, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. yeah you, I, you, I, you said I, something in the book like you, uh, I th- I think it was when you were making a deal with the uh, the pond to blow stuff up in it, and you had said like, uh, "I went into my male mode and shook his hand and and said something in a gruff voice, you know, that kind of thing." I was like, "That's cool." <laughs> yeah, that's um, I I think the the phrase might be like code switching. That's typically applied to like race, but it I think it applies to gender as well. Like this this happens with other women that I've talked to who are in male dominated field. Sure. Is you realize you get different responses if you use different patterns of language. Especially like the whole thing with Margaret Thatcher and Elizabeth Holmes and them deepening their voice. Like that shit is real. Everyone totally. keeps trying to judge them for it, but that shit is real. And I don't know why it matters, but it does. And it's um yeah, so if I'm walking into a room, I yeah, I was with the Navy for almost nine years. So if I'm walking into room and it's all dudes and i need to be in charge of that room which is kind of like not trying to brag but that's often my job that's uh-huh. why they bring me in um then there's a different m- physical mannerism sure. that makes an impact and and i think i don't think it's necessarily sexism i think it's just that we teach the genders to communicate in different ways. And so for women, this is part of why, in my opinion, like groups of women are sort of slow to get out the door, make plans in women, groups of women, it's considered rude to be pushy. It's mm-hmm. considered rude to make a choice for other people, especially like yeah. making a choice for someone else or telling someone else what to do is considered a very negative thing. Yeah. Whereas, make up your mind that's perceived as weakness or incompetence so it's not necessarily sexism it's just that we like use different cues to evaluate each other and people aren't doing that consciously so yeah like if i'm in a group of men and i try to be deferential very the male way to interpret that is as someone who can't make up their mind and that's perceived as incompetence and i think they instantly i never thought about and i think that the guy would instantly fall into their um pattern of dominance so they would kind of start walking all over in the conversation and that kind of thing exactly. like goes goes in every direction because i know like in my job um i i deal in construction equipment so i'm out working with mm-hmm. construction guys all the time so it's a very guys guy kind of a thing you know a lot of foul language and a lot of dudes and bros and and all that <laughs> while we're doing business but then i also deal with um a lot of offices which is largely women a lot of times there's a lot of women on construction sites too but mainly what mm-hmm. i'm thinking of is when i'm in an office and I'm talking to a few women in an office. I certainly change my tone of voice and my demeanor. I'm not as I'm not as construction guy Mike as I am with the uh, the other guys out in the field. So I kind of yeah, change absolutely. the way I talk, the words I use, the tone of my voice, body language, the whole thing. Um, and even the same with kids, right? Like if I'm talking to my kids or other kids, like you kind of come down lower, you you hunch your shoulders, try to appear appear smaller, you have a less threatening tone of voice, all that. So I think we all just kind of modify our our presence and our sound for the audience. And yeah, I totally agree. And I, I honestly don't think 
in my opinion, at least a lot of it is not necessarily sexism. It's just that we all have these unconscious ways of evaluating other people given the environment we're in. And that's a very human thing to do. And they're not necessarily looking at me and seeing a female. They're looking at me and seeing someone who is unwilling to make a decision. Yeah. Um, And so if I adopt those more male mannerisms, Mm. I generally don't have any problems right. like there of course i've run into individuals who are sexist but like overall they just want to know i'm capable sure. especially with the military like if i walk into a yeah. room all they want to know is are you good at your job the answer to that is yes and so as long as i convey that like then they're good so right. to me that's what's really interesting about that so you got to kind of like come out of the gate swinging just like boom let me just lay this down so we all know where we're at i'm in charge here i'm, I'm what you're looking for and and uh set the stage which and i think women are all uh a little bit um, let's see. It's, it's, it's kind of a double standard to where, like you mentioned, like when a woman is pushy or decisive, even, um, they're looked at a little bit like, oh, oh man, she's a little up here. She got up on the wrong side of the bed or they're looked at a little bit like, oh, maybe, um, uh, negatively. Whereas if a guy is decisive and authoritative, then it's looked at more like, oh yeah, he's, he's going places. He's in charge. So it's a little bit of a yeah. d- double standard there, I think. It's a little bit, but I also think it really depends on the environment. Cause like if sure. you, you just, you know, if you go into a construction site and you start being really deferential and you start being like, well, what do you think? What do you think is best? Yeah. They would judge you the same way. Yeah. So to me, that's not necessarily related that's to true. sex. Like that's related to the mannerisms and your behavior for that environment. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good um, point. Yeah. Yeah. It, oh. It's got to feel good to get over that hump too. I would imagine, you know, because you probably walk into yeah. that situation thinking like, Oh, I'm, I'm the only woman in this all male room. But then I, I would imagine once they see how smart you are and that you actually can carry yourself well, it's like, Oh, then, then gender leaves the room and you're like, Oh, thank God. <laughs> thank God. You know, yeah. <laughs> that that's actually gone now. But. Yeah, I mean, my my big marker is when they'll start uh, swearing and joking. So as soon as uh, people oh, start swearing and joking, in. that's yeah. like, all right, all the tension's yeah. gone. We can all just like all move forward. Jokes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that, like the reality, you know, to be fair, people aren't necessarily some people. If they're sexist, that's just going to be a problem for them no matter what. But the rest of people, which is the vast majority of people I've ever worked with, aren't necessarily sexist. It's just that every new person to enter these environments, they're evaluating in some way. So it doesn't matter what I look like. It doesn't matter who I am. You're coming into their world where explosives are in hand. uh, People's lives are at stake. This is very serious. They could die if we do something wrong. And so no matter what, they are evaluating the competence of the person who's coming in, who's the outsider. And I think that's honestly really fair. So this is not anything. Yeah. Like I'm not complaining. I've never been offended by any of this. I think it like makes sense given the environments we're in. I've just found that like manner of communication makes a really big difference. Yeah. I got to say that your, your awareness, uh, your situational awareness, I think also, uh, comes across in your book, uh, because I, 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 uh, you, you're reading a book and anytime I start reading a book, which is very rare, but when I do, I have a reluctance. <laughs> He's telling you stuff up, Derek. Come on. <laughs> I, I have a reluctance when I read a book and I'm kind of like, uh, uh, yeah, whatever. Okay. Like but words the, are for nerds. <laughs> kind of. I, I, you know, I, Unfortunately, uh, but there was a point in reading your book where something flipped for me and I was like, I really like her. 
Uh, and, I like and you it, too. Thank you, thank <laughs> yeah. you. It, it, it was interesting though. It was interesting to me because it was kind of like a, a visceral thing, and I think it was your. Uh, I loved how you you took all the science and all the explosion stuff, but then you you also you didn't neglect what was going on in your life during that entire time. Like, and, and what you're saying, you know, your situational awareness of, of the people and the things around you. And then, uh, you know, bringing in, um, uh, your husband, Nick, uh, that and into that. And then how he like, uh, when he proposed to you and such, and it was just like, <laughs> you know, you, you really brought in a personal people aspect into it, which I, I thought was, um, was really good. You're, I, I think you're, uh, talented at writing even thank you so much that's i i I genuinely appreciate hearing that because i was really on the fence when i was outlining the book over whether or not i was willing to include myself in it at all Mm -hmm. um i'm not normally a person who likes to talk about themselves a lot like obviously you know we're in a podcast this is a different context like you've asked me here to, to ask questions but in a normal environment if we were just hanging out i would be continuously redirecting the conversation into questions about yourselves just because like i know my story i think you guys are more interesting like i always think new people are more interesting and so that was the decision to include myself was um it was a moment of kind of deciding to be vulnerable and deciding to be public in a way that I'm normally not. And I wasn't sure what the balance would be. I wasn't sure how that would be received. Um, but what it's turned out to be, it's turned out to be a positive thing overall. Eventually I decided to do it for the sole reason that I couldn't make this story make sense without it because there are all these like disconnected parts, right? Like there's asphyxiation and there's bombs and like you, there was no way to smash it together without explaining the narrative of how I walked through the science. And so I had to include some degree of human element to make that make sense. Um, But you did a really, really great job of that too. And it made me wonder, is this your first book? Have you ever had yeah. experience writing anything before? No, this was my first book. That's incredible. Um, it's incredible. The, the cohesiveness yeah. and structure, because you're doing a lot of things. You're not just telling one story. So you're telling the story of how you investigated uh, a, his, a, a mystery. But that mystery requires you to tell the history of a very charged, controversial um, story. Uh, just inherently, the story of the Hunley on its, yeah. uh, like in it, in and of itself, is a controversial, um, a, a lot of a lot of conflicting information or accounts, and there's a lot there. It's not a cut and dry story, so you had to tell that uh, hardcore Absolutely. story, which is a book in its own, and the story of scientific experimentation yeah. and and all that, and then yeah, also like the the personal trajectory of navigating through this whole process. And then uh, so many layers to it. You did such a good job, like Derek said, of of kind of telling the story, like kind of um, all at the same time, but in separate chunks that all kind of traveled together. And at the end, it, it wrapped up really nicely. And I thought that, too, like, damn, this is a really well put together book with a lot of complicated subject matter. <laughs> You did a great job. Thank you. I I actually, a lot of the credit for that really goes to my literary agent. Her name is Lori Abkmeyer and she's very experienced. And so when she picked me up as a client, um, that was her deal was I, her deal was, I will take you as a writer, but 
you have to restructure your book. So she kind of helped Yeah. So she and I went back and forth several times, like trying to blend everything together in a way that made sense. So she deserves a lot of credit for the way that the outline happened, but that was definitely the hardest part because there are, there are like three different stories that I, that all needed each other to work. Yeah. Um, Yeah. so, so yeah, well, that brings me to a question too. And, and, and I'm kind of jumping around, but that's fun. Um, (laughs) is, uh, after you finished your paper, you became uh-huh. a doctor and you uh-huh. thought that this whole piece Fake of doctor. your life was in the rearview mirror. <laughs> you were saying yeah. a mistake. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know, right? You... I was like, well, that's done. Next project. Yeah, moving on. <laughs> and then like, it's all I've talked about for the last six years. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah, for, uh, so... for, forever, I assume. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, and okay. So you decided to write a book. Um, what did that decision process look like? How long after you finished the project or what, what did that look like? Oh, that was a desperate grab for survival. I'm not going to lie about that <laughs> because I never saw myself as an author. Like you said, I've never done this before. I have no experience. My my only real connection to literature and writing is that I'm a huge reader. Okay. I read a lot. And I think that's where like my love of writing comes from um, is the ability to kind of craft my own stories for the first time. But I went back to work for the Navy again. And I had a really big project that I had already gotten funding. And this project was something that was extremely important to me because it was based on a diver who had died. He wasn't, he wasn't one of my divers, but he was supporting my divers on one of their training missions. So he was actually an employee with NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. His oh. name was Dewey Smith. And he died supporting my divers as they were training. Um, and he died of something called hypoxia, which is like, it was a freak accident. Underwater tools nearby him that like my guys were using flipped through the settings on his equipment and turned it off. And oh. he had... Oh man. Um, yeah. And so he kind of just like passed out and then drowned. Passing out is real bad underwater. Yeah. So that didn't go well. Um, and that was really sad. And that's also a very common cause of accidents for divers using this specific type of breathing equipment. So we had two more deaths that year alone from that same cause, obviously not the same scenario with the underwater tools. But um, when I was in grad school, part of the reason I'd wanted to go to Duke and work at the chamber was because I had an idea for a safety device that I thought could be useful to kind of prevent that. And I knew that they had this chamber where I could study that and try and make that into an actual product. Okay. Um, and I'd already gone through the first phase. So I went through the first phase on the side of my graduate research, which like if anyone's ever been a graduate student knows, like that's how much dedication it was. Like I would, I dragged myself to this lab, like literally bleeding sometimes. There were times when I'd come in my graduate school research and the nurses would like patch me up so I could do this additional science on the side without having to go home. It was just like this bedraggled grad student. I would have to like borrow scrubs. Um, they just like bandage me. <laughs> Be like, fine. Um, and it worked. So my idea worked and it showed that it could be used to save these divers lives. So, um, yeah, obviously Dewey Smith was already gone, but the goal, like I said, the goal, the goal of sifting through this tragedy is always to save the next one. Um, and so I had money in hand 
for the second phase of that project. So it's going to be a half a million dollar project, which is not huge on the DOD scale, but it, it's enough to do um, like the human testing that I needed to do the next phase of developing this and do like the more intense testing to, to finalize this concept. Yeah. Um, so the Navy decided that administrative tasks were going to take precedence because of some sort of, I, I don't know, paperwork, something I don't, I genuinely don't care, but um, they told me that they had decided instead of letting me finish this project, they were going to move me across the country. And I only had three weeks notice. Um, my husband, Nick also, he's a firefighter, so he can move, but he can't move that fast. Sure. Like it takes a year or two for him to move. So they knew that they were splitting up my essentially brand new family. And they yeah. knew that they were killing this project that was based on like this guy who died on, he, you know, I, he wasn't my diver, like I said, but he was diving on one of my dives and sure. um, they were going to make me just give back all that money. So I had like, I had the money in hand. And so I ended up quitting my job with the Navy instead. And Duke offered to let me do the project anyway. Um, and so Duke found a way to pay me just like hourly for that work alone. Okay. Um, so I think I was slated to make like $11,000. <laughs> So, you know, I mean, I've actually survived on less than that. You know, I've had, I've had rough years. Sure. Um, I've survived on less than that. But like at that time, I didn't really like quote unquote have a place to live or, you know, um, so like that. I so I really, leave. really wanted to keep a little bit higher standard of living for myself. Yeah. So in, the book was a way to supplement that. Um, the book was a way to, oh, okay. I was grabbing at every straw I could. So I taught a class at UNC as an adjunct professor, which turned out to be a fantastic experience. Um, and I learned a lot there about teaching and about explaining stuff to people. <laughs> um, and then writing the book proposal and getting this book deal was a very long shot, but it ended up working out and it ended up letting me um, keep this project going um, wow. while I was pseudo unemployed. Um, <clears throat> and then after the book was completely done and that project was completely done and it was successful by the way, it showed that it worked again. Really? So now wow. we're working towards like making a production version of this thing. Yeah. So then after the book was done and after that project was done, um, after all that Duke offered me like a part-time faculty position. Wow. Um, that's yeah. And so that's how I kind of got where I am now. So I'm, I'm still working at Duke and I'm working on a second book as well. So just cool. cause I, it turns out I really liked it. Yeah. So that's awesome. Well, so, so I understand yeah. too, cause I've, I don't know if I'll ever write a book, but I've thought like, Oh, it'd be really fun to write a book. I love reading books. So uh, I, I, I get overly step ambitious. One. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Step I, one. <laughs> I, I wouldn't even know where to start though. And so you, you feel like, okay, I've got this great story. I'd like to write a book. How did you how did you learn that you needed to write a proposal and how to submit that to publishers to even get a book deal? Okay, so first of all, if you decide you want to write a book seriously, just email me. We'll talk again. But just like for the purpose of, I've done this with a couple people. Like I'm, I really want to you know pay forward the people that helped me get started. Oh. But like for the purposes of the podcast, I actually just found another author at Duke. Like I, I just like. Nice. Got someone to introduce me to them, and she was nice enough to sit down and have coffee and sort of explain it. So luckily, and you so work she... at one of the best universities <laughs> in the world. That, that, yeah. that, that's nice. Yeah. Here's okay, but here's the thing, Mike. I promise you, you might not know a lot of authors. Well, now you know one. Uh, yeah. But um, 
you know someone who has written a book before sure. or like you know someone who knows someone who has written a book before and yeah. so i've i've done this and i've done this with people who have reached out to me through my website blindly um at this point i have kind of a boilerplate email text that i'll send just to get like the basic explanation and then of course people are welcome to follow up afterwards sure. if they want but so cool. yeah i sat down with an author and she was really nice enough to walk me through the process and she gave me her proposal as an example wow. and then from there it's about landing an agent because your yeah. agent has this professional knowledge and they're going to take you at a little juvenile newbie hand and they're going to walk you through the rest of it for you yeah. because you can't, yeah, you can't send a proposal directly to a publisher. No, yeah, you like can't. they will not read it. Yeah. You have to go through an agent. Sure. So that's good for everybody. Um, and I found my agent by going to the bookstore. So I went wow. to Barnes and Noble and I picked up books I'd really liked and I just went through the back and people list their agent in the acknowledgments. Wow. So you just then start Googling Grassroots. stuff. Grassroots. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And that that's, is. that's like a normal way to do it. That's not me being wow. like super resourceful. If you look, yeah, that's a normal way to do it. So. Wow. My sister-in-law is an agent and, um, oh, look at this. I know two Person. people in the industry. Got, now. Yeah. Like, I told yeah. you. <laughs> this, is, this is working she's out. Pretty successful. She, uh, yeah. <laughs> she can, she can literally read like 200 pages an hour. That's crazy. Like I, I, I think it's an hour. It might even be faster than that. I mean, wow. she's in, I, she's kind of savant, like a little bit of a, is, that's the right word. Right? I feel dumb. I, yeah. I sometimes have to read yeah. things over and over again, like until Same I feel here. like, I'll read a whole oh, page yeah. sometimes. I'll get to the end and go, I, I didn't retain any of that. And I'll go back and oh. read the page again. Like I'm, uh, yeah, I'm a very inefficient reader, but I won't stop until I get I it. I hear so. the narrative voice. I have to like hear it in yeah. my head. Yeah, and so like so that makes me slower. Yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm an embarrassingly books. slow reader. I, 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 I do that... read paper books, but I love audio books because I feel like I can listen to them when I'm, when I'm driving, I can be fully immersed in what they're saying. And the spoken word just really penetrates my, my thought process. I think better than me mm. reading, visually reading my thoughts stray. And like I said, at the end of a page, I'll go, I, I didn't, I didn't, I read every word and I don't know what any of them were. Um, so I really have See, to try I... to read. Yeah. Like I really, I know a lot of people who say the same thing, but for me, it's the opposite. Like if I get to the end of the page, I want to be able to know exact. I know exactly where I left off brain wise. Yes. Yeah. Where I deviated. So I can just yep. like jump back up. Totally. Whereas I feel like if I tune out an audiobook, which I do all the time, I, oh. I space out constantly. So I'm in my head, like thinking about cheeseburgers or I don't know, whatever else pops up in Explosions, there. Explosions. You know. Yeah. I'm thinking about cheeseburgers now. You know, <laughs> I, yeah. who isn't thinking about cheeseburgers, yeah, yeah, Derek? Yeah. Dude, <laughs> on, on the topic of audiobooks, um, the narrator who read your book, Rebecca Lohman, did a incredible job. Um, I think I don't know. Do you have a hand in picking the audiobook narrator or how did that work? Did the I do. do all that? I, I do, but it's kind of like when they give a little kid a choice about what to wear for the day. It's like, do you want the red pants or the blue pants? <laughs> so, like, they, which is fine sure. because I don't know what I'm They've doing. They've already vetted. So, They're fine with either choice. Yeah, yeah. So they send me a list of like three or four and then they let me pick. So I picked her because I like that she had like a little bit of a deeper and huskier voice. Um, like all of the options were, were lovely. Lovely, but sure in she, my own head in my own head and don't correct me i don't want to know in my own head she sounded the most like me she, so. uh like audio quality was great she sounded great but like um she really captured your blend of like super technical knowledge and also like lighthearted playfulness 
a lot. Good, which good, <laughs> yeah. Matched the, 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 which I think matched the way the book was written really, really well. I thought she was perfect. It was the goal. It was the goal. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah about halfway in, I, I looked to at the book because I didn't realize, I was like, did Rachel actually narrate this? And you know, because it was believable that, yeah, that you could have narrated that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've heard nothing but good things about her. So I'm really hopeful she'll do my second book as well. So Very cool. We'll see. Yeah. So oh, one in the works, huh? Nice. What's what's uh? Can you talk about the new one or not yet? Oh yeah, I can. Um, I worked more explosions into it, which I'm very excited awesome. about. <laughs> oh, cool. So it's another true story. Um, and it's there's like clues to it in in the waves. So do you remember the chapter about the HMS Thetis going down, which is a British submarine that sank in 1939 during a test dive? Yeah. So there were some scientists that did some experiments on themselves after the sinking of the HMS Thetis. And that kind of made it in, in the waves as like just a few paragraphs. So it's, it's not super memorable, but essentially I kind of wanted to talk about scientists who experimented on themselves because this is a very strong cultural phenomenon in science. You might not know this, but pretty much every, with the exception of things like chemotherapy, um, pretty much every scientific experiment most of us do it on ourselves first. Wow. Uh, I've, yeah, I've never asked anyone to do anything that I haven't already done myself. Um, cause again, ex- with, with some exceptions, like I'm not going to go in chemotherapy. That's, that's a bit much. Yeah. But like, well, um, yeah, in it terms can be of tough to find willing yeah. test subjects, so you're like, oh, I'll yeah. just, you know, see how it In this terms works. of like my stuff where we're starting with healthy people, we're putting them underwater. I've done it all first. So sure. to make sure it works. So anyway, I wanted to write a book about that. And my agent really fo- told me to focus on one particular group to make it a narrative story. So I'm focused on that group who did the experiments on themselves following the sinking of the Thetis wow. because I started looking at more of their papers and they're doing this like shit with oxygen and carbon dioxide and they're publishing it in like 1941. Wow. I'm sitting there I'm like, why are these people so obsessed with oxygen in the middle of the blitz? In London. <laughs> I was like, what are they doing? Yeah. So it was sort of like the knowing the history kind of led me to the story. But essentially what it turned out is after that Thetis thing, saying that same lab group started working on amphibious diving for the eventual workup to D-Day. So they're the ones who, and they tested it all on themselves. They figured out how deep you can safely go while breathing pure oxygen. Because if you go too far, you have a seizure. They can, they figured out how much oxygen you could tolerate. They figured out what will happen to these divers in all these different scenarios. And then in like the weeks and a couple months before D-Day, the British used this information to send amphibious divers up on the shores of Normandy to scout the beaches and draw wow. detailed maps of where the Germans were and dig up ordnance that they'd placed there and bring them back for study to the UK, things like that. And it was all based on this research group who did all this testing on themselves and they all got very seriously injured in the process. Like they were wow. having seizures. Um, one woman, there's one particularly great story about, and half of them were Jewish refugees, first of all. So half of them had just come over fleeing Hitler. Wow. And then also like half the group is female, which you just don't see. Yeah, wow. So there's this one amazing story about a woman 
who was in one of these tests and she sees so hard her jaw dislocates. So they're in this metal tube. She's had such a powerful seizure. Her jaw dislocates. The only communication they have with the outside is like a hammer. So her guy who's in there with her, the term is tender, like her tender hammers on the wall. Like, Oh, we need to come up. But meanwhile, they're stuck in there because if you come up too fast, you get decompression sickness, right. which is bad. Yeah. And so he's like got to try to figure out how to relocate her jaw while they're stuck in this metal tube for hours Gosh. as she's coming out of her seizure. Yeah, it's Man. just like what they were doing was insane. And also they're being bombed. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Also that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Bombing of also London. Also the right bombs. Then. Yeah. So, like, yeah. It might all end. Yeah. We have it so, good. We have it pretty good. I know, right? <laughs> Man. <laughs> it's, people are like... People are complaining a lot about stuff. I'm just like... Yeah. You know wow. what? Well, I'm fun. Yeah, one of them, what if them took, what if them took, at one point, one of them took two days off because his house got bombed and he took two days off. Uh, I was like, uh, this is ridiculous. Wow. So, that's just yeah. thinks of himself. I, I had never yeah. spent a lot of time thinking about, um, those early days of World War One or World War Two before we got involved. And I read a book about Winston Churchill fairly recently. And it yeah. goes through a lot of the details of the Blitz and all that, and mainly focused around him and his handling of it, but a lot of a lot of surrounding story, too. And it was just crazy. I, I knew London was bombed, but I had no idea to what extent and how close it really came to, uh, I mean, the English Empire just kind of going away at that point. Yeah. Um, Are, were you talking about The Splendid and the Vile, Eric Larson's new book? Uh, no, it's Winston Churchill. Uh, I think it's just called Churchill. Oh, what's the guy's oh, okay. name? Now I gotta okay, look it cool. up. It's like a 38 hour audiobook. It took a while to get through it. <laughs> it was I mean, incredible. He was a com- he was a complicated person. <laughs> so. Oh yeah, but like aren't they but, all, yeah. right? Like they're good and yeah. bad, like all of us. Um, yeah, I'm tired of people looking to history for heroes. Like, I'm sorry, Andrew all Roberts. of us are imperfect. Andrew Roberts okay. wrote it called Churchill. I had to look in my audible history. I might look it up. Yeah. It is an I, incredible. I'm, yeah. Uh, book and yeah yeah like you said like Churchill was incredibly sexist he he kind of kept down the um uh the uh um what am I trying to say the suffragettes um the ladies the oh, ladies okay. well suffragettes <laughs> who were trying to you know push for uh female voting rights and equality and all that kind of stuff and he was oh yeah a big opponent you know, of them was, we could say it he was kind of a dick it yeah, was just like totally that yeah. was what that was what England needed. Because Hitler was also kind of a dick. But <laughs> and then he was also this, like, total sweetheart who was really good to his kids because his own dad was a huge dick to him. So that <laughs> bad experience turned him into a good father. So he was a great father. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, like, all kinds of really great and then all kinds of really bad um, came together in a pivotal <sighs> person. And, and uh, it's a cool book. Yeah. I yeah. I mean, that's really... Interesting. Um, yeah, now I might have to look it up. That's, I, I just think that's really interesting because when I look up historical figures and I'm looking through these things myself, everything is so oversimplified in the way that we want to think about people from totally. history. And the reality mm-hmm. is like, we're all kind of fuck ups. Like yeah. we all mess things up. Like we all make mistakes. We all base bad decisions on the impartial information we might have. Right. Like we're all the victims of our time period and everybody has complexity and nuance. Like there's no yeah. pure hero and there's no 
there's rarely a pure vil- villain. Well, and nothing, so nothing like you just said, Churchill's really nice dad. Good. So sure. yeah, yeah, stuff like that, and and uh, so bad yeah. in so many ways. Well, even like um, Ben Franklin, I like Ben Franklin a lot, but he was a terrible father and uh-huh. uh, not great to his wife. Yeah. and you know, also a really great guy, an incredible inventor, a great statesman, all this other great stuff. And Albert right. Einstein was right. another one. Have you ever l- learned much about like the personal life of Albert Einstein? No, a, tell me. He was a horrible person to his wife was and his he? kids. A horrible oh, person. Oh, God. Horrible, horrible. Like, it makes uh. you cringe. His poor wife, Maleva, was such a sweetheart and so supportive and helped him a lot working on his studies and publishing his early papers and all that. He never gave her credit. It blew me away how big of an asshole he was to her. Um, but at the end of the day, he's Albert Einstein, and we all revere him. It's and he was an amazing, incredible man. But damn. Uh <gasps> You may not want to read about him. <laughs> when I was, I was like, I really read this book expecting to like him more, and uh, it didn't go that direction. It was, it was very like, wow, man, yeah, yeah, terrible That's, to his kids. I, you know, I heard things about like his wife had really helped a lot, but she I was didn't incredible. know you would like her a I've lot, heard... Maleva okay. Marich. <laughs> Okay. She she would be worth because she was like this uh, very scientific minded um, independent woman who, which was very rare for her and where she was from, went to school and she was in college and studying science and doing her own um, experiments and like making a lot of progress in the scientific world. Then married him and that all just stopped. He expected her to just stay home and end all of her ambition and raise kids. And it was really hard for her um, because she was brilliant. And um, yeah. and then she never got to. A flex that muscle like she never got to scratch that itch of of scientific well, that we activity. Know of, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. It seemed that well, she wrote a lot about like basically wanting to be more involved, and then she tried to help him with his stuff, and he would take her her input and let her help, but would never give her credit, and kind of kept her in the shadows and all this. Where it was like, dude, yeah, who knows? Maybe she's behind the scenes of some uh, of that. yeah, yeah, yeah. People theorize that, like, because yeah. he just he just sounds like he needs a light stabbing. Yeah, but, <laughs> totally, totally. Well, that yeah. that makes me like Pierre. Pierre Curie more because I know he got a lot of like pressure to do the same thing. Like he got so much pressure to take credit for everything. That's obviously cool. Yeah, like he contributed for sure, but he at the same time was really good about being like, "Nah, man, she did it." Yeah, she's incredible, (laughs) and she played a huge role, which is so rare for then. I mean, it was just a given that the guy would take all the credit. You know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. No, that that's a cool example of the other way to do it. And it would have been cool if Einstein had done that. They probably would have accomplished more as a... <laughs> Mike, you're going to send me to day drinking. Oh. <laughs> I know. I haven't thought about that book in a long time, and now I'm just all mad at Albert Einstein again. I'm weird. Oh, yeah. man. It's all good. So, it's all okay. Good. So, to, to get back on, on the core of the story and the reason that we wanted to talk to you is your book, okay. In the Waves. Um, and speaking huh. of how things can be both bad and good... And stories can be twisted and kind of changed. I mean, the story of the Confederacy is certainly one of those where Mm -hmm. it's been twisted in all sorts of directions and is still being twisted in all sorts of directions. And there's so much, like, charged um, energy around the telling of the story, whether it be should Confederate statues um, be kept in place or removed or how the story of something like the Hunley should be told and... It kind of surprises me because I look at history as more factual. Like I look, oh, if we learn something, then we all get smarter and we all get to enjoy the truth, good or bad. Now we all know something. And I feel good about mm-hmm. that. And that's not everyone's opinion. Um, and 
And I want to <laughs> no, touch it on not. that. It's not, right? And I want to get there. And and I fear that not it's enough people not. know the basic story of the Hunley. Um, yeah. So, like, in a nutshell, it's a long story. But would you mind giving, like, a quick little, like, elevator story of what the Hunley is? Yeah. Um, okay. So, the North blockaded the South as one of their tactics. Yeah. The South didn't expect a war to happen. They thought they would just leave the Union and it would be fine. Um, and they were surprised when the Union fought back. And so they left and they declared secession with very little industry to speak of. They had zero ability to manufacture most of the needed conventional weapons of war, like black powder or most munitions, things like that. Um, and so they were really caught off guard. And so one of the tactics that the North used was to try to disrupt the supply chain, which we're all now so familiar with as important in our lives. Yeah. So they blockaded all these Southern ports and harbors and the goal was to stop the South from importing anything that they needed. Now, one of the cities that was blockaded was Charleston, South Carolina, which is also where the war started. It's where they declared secession. It's where the first firing shots of the war were. And so the Union sailors are pretty pissed at Charleston. So as the war continues to go on and like a lot of these ports and harbors kind of start to fall to these, you know, union troops and sailors and you got Sherman burning all kinds of shit coming in from the land. We've got the blockade from the sea. Charleston starts to be one of like the last cities really standing and people in Wilmington get real mad if you say that, but that's fine. It's the last major harbor left. Yeah. Yeah. New Orleans was already down. Yeah. (laughs) New Orleans was down. There was only two functioning harbors and you couldn't even really say that Charleston was really functioning when the only way to get stuff (laughs) in and out was to run a blockade. Exactly. It was super blockaded. And also they were having a lot of fun with the explosives because this is like the target of their wrath. They're like, uh, this is where the war started. We've been in this shit war. All of our friends have died of dysentery. Like they've, Poop themselves to death, which is like two thirds of the casualties in the Civil War. I like how you work poop into it because you know our podcast is heavy on the poop talk. I got to keep it thematic for you. I appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah, I listen. I listen to the episode with Derek's brother, but (laughs) (laughs) it was like an hour. It was like an hour of poop. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta get this in somehow. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, so this is a miserable war to be in, no matter what your role is, even if you're an officer it just sucks so the south as one of their ways to try and break the blockade is to use these improvised submarines and one of those is the hl hunley now keep in mind as well that this was originally called the fish boat and it was renamed hunley after one of the inventors horace hunley who is not an engineer he was kind of like the finance dude decided to take it joyriding killing himself and seven others So they rename it in his dubious honor, and they're using this thing to try and break the blockade by attaching a 200-pound black powder bomb to the front end. And they take this bomb and they jam it up against the side of the Union ship USS Housatonic. The bomb goes off. The Housatonic sinks. It is on the seafloor within five minutes, which thankfully is only 30 feet deep. So most of the crew was able to survive by climbing up in the rigging. But the Hunley disappeared and was not seen or hurt. Well, it was, let's avoid that part of the story. It was raised in 2000. That part's undebatable. It was raised in 2000. And as they start conserving it and they start bringing it up, 
the mystery of why it disappeared sort of only deepens. So that's where I got involved was because I was kind of looking at these pictures and looking at this thing, not in 2000. I was not aware of it yet at that time. Um, but during grad school, my advisor had suggested it to me as like kind of a fun side project, which anytime someone says like it might take yeah. a couple days, like that's just Here's never something true. you can kind of tinker with for a few days. So like, can yeah, thanks. Like or my entire life. The weekend? Yeah, yeah. Like, or it'll take me two straight years. <laughs> and I'll have like literal physical scars from this experiment. <laughs> so, and you're talking about when your advisor, Dale, just threw out yeah. the, the, the kind of half thought out phrase. What about the Hunley? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, what? exactly. He what had this way of like starting conversations in the middle and I said you to like sort of catch up. So that was how that whole thing started. So what um, about like, okay, so he threw out that like, what about the Hunley? I, I, I assume he knew this is right up our alley. The, mm-hmm. the, the, the guys that were found inside the Hunley were all basically sitting right at their stations still. Yes. Um, some yes. of the leading theories at that time were asphyxiation, um, drowning and, through your guys's expertise, you know how people react in those situations, and the way the bodies were found was not consistent with um, how they would have been found if the, if they had died by those methods, right? Yeah. So that's the weird part about this project is I feel like I don't really believe in you know cosmic connections or karma, but I, I've struggled to find out with another way to explain it. But it's yeah. almost like this was just like cosmically waiting for me to come along this project for some reason it incorporated all of the weird patchwork things that i'd been distracted by throughout my entire life um you know so like i said i've sort of just followed the shiny things and for some reason all of those shiny things together were what i needed to figure out sort of what happened with huntley and um based on that like because i've had i've had um problems with high carbon dioxide while scuba diving. I've worked in breathing systems design for the Navy. So I know how to calculate how much oxygen people are using and how much carbon dioxide people are taking. And I did all of that before I came back to Duke, where I was then working in blast trauma, um, things like that. So looking at this accident, it's very visibly apparent that this is not a group of people who have asphyxiated inside the hull. And because the submarine's history of two crews going down and dying in two separate ways, right? Yeah, One of the crews, really grisly ways. Dude. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so bad. Yeah. <laughs> so bad. Yeah. For lack of a better yeah. term, dude. Um, yeah, dude. <laughs> I agree. One of the crews mostly drowned, right? That was the one where Hunley himself was piloting. He went down it went in it, and it hit the mud and stuck at like a 45 degree angle. So there was an air mm-hmm. pocket up the top where Hunley was able to uh, asphyxiate. He wasn't drowned immediately, but crew below Oh, him, no, dude. Lower, it's worse right? than that. It's worse than that. So when Hunley, when Hunley was piloting, one of the crews drowned. Um, the boat got water intrusion and it sank. So some of them made it out and the rest drowned. Three made it out, five drowned. Like very, so they were pretty quick. Um, they couldn't get out. So that sucks, but it sucked for a short period of time. Whereas with Hudley was piloting, he just plowed it into the bottom of the ocean. They didn't drown. There was no water in there. They just died a very slow death by asphyxiation. Oh, that whole crew asphyxiated. Oh, Oh, yeah. And that's like, if you read the original descriptions, I toned it down a little bit for the book just because 
my filter for that is kind of my mom. If my mom thinks it's too much, then I'll take it off. <laughs> She's but like, like you know, the, maybe less. Like, I didn't enjoy this, Rachel. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, uh yeah, no, the the descriptions of this crew are grisly as hell. Yeah. And that is a more classic case of asphyxiation. And that is consistent with descriptions of other scenarios where people have asphyxiated inside a closed container. The, the agonizing you know it's coming. Of it's that. yeah, it is painful. Yeah. I've experienced oh, high carbon dioxide because it's the carbon dioxide that gets you really. Right. It's very painful. Like the it's it's cripplingly painful. And so Horace Hunley died trying to physically claw his way through half an inch of solid steel. Right. Solid. Well, solid iron. Yeah. So, um, um, but yeah, he, he, he died curled up in that forward conning tower. Yeah. Tried to claw his way out. That's how like desperate oh and panicked he was. And, that's- and the rest of the crew were, were in no less distress. Like these sure. people were curled up into the fetal position and right. things like that. And that's what that accident looks like. And that's consistent um, with human nature. And you touch on that where humans right. are, no matter how, how noble or how gallant uh, a person is when they're, when they're asphyxiating, they're going to struggle to get out. Like you said, they're going to try to claw yeah. through steel. Like try to survive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, yeah. Doesn't, it doesn't even Everyone make logical sense. But you can't just sit mm-hmm. there and uh, you know go through that. Yeah. So they don't just fall over. And on top of that, too, carbon dioxide causes panic attacks. Sure. So I don't care how chill you are. You put someone in seven to ten percent carbon dioxide, they're freaking out. Yeah. Like that's it's a biological response. Right. Um, it has nothing to do with temperament. It has nothing to do with, you know, ethical judgment. Yeah. They're they're freaking out. And so and even even with drowning, definitely a much quicker, less horrific, um, for less time way to go. Yeah. But still long enough time to get out of your seat and struggle for the exits. Um, yes. Which they found. And, and that's what they did. And the first time yeah. it sank, when a, a couple of the crew or one of the crew got out the first time it sank, right? Yeah. Um, three got out. Yeah. Three got out. Um, the other ones were certainly not just still sitting at their at their crank. They were, you know, trying to get out, right? They were they were located all over yeah. all over the boat. Um, so Yeah, there's less detailed information about exactly where they were found. Okay. Um, but, like, the, the survivors definitely reported, like, everyone's trying to get out. Sure. Of course, it's just just logical, right? Your, your dog agrees. She's like, "Yeah, it's nonsense." Um, yes, my dog has strong feelings. About uh, yeah, this. and, and it's, it's a passionate um, subject. I appreciate her feelings. Yeah, <laughs> you wait till you hear her when we talk about the lost cause. Oh, People who man. claim the civil war is not get her fired up. She gets real pissed. <laughs> so. Dude, that, that, that stuff to me kind of it surprises me that it's still around with as much vigor as it is. And it's the it, most effective propaganda campaign in history. Yeah, it's nuts. And it bums me out how it has stifled, um, uh, in my word, I'm no scientist, so I'll use the word proof. Uh, I know you won't use the word proof, <laughs> but the proof hey. that you've provided, uh, yeah. it, it, it sucks that things like propaganda and the need to control a narrative have kept, yeah. kept new advancements in learning down. And, um, <sighs> I'm really glad you picked up on that part because it's just surprising to me how many people didn't read the epilogue. Dude, read the epilogue. There's some stuff in there. Yeah, it's so. nuts. And, and so, like, you you didn't just have a theory and and look at the mm. the situation and go like, oh, these guys uh, had a giant explosion go off right near them. Um, they're in a metal tube, and they all were found 
exactly where they were sitting when the explosion went off. You and your field of expertise, mm-hmm. I'm sure you had more than a hunch of what happened. Um, so you decided yeah. to go after it and study it. But you didn't just study your theory. You studied all the other leading theories like suffocation, drowning, lucky shot. Um, you really put these to the test, which I thought was cool. And you told that story really well. And you put Thanks. them to bed. I don't know why they're still considered leading <sighs> theories. Like, really, dude? I don't know, man. I, I don't know. It's I nuts know. to me. I, to me, I think it's a strategy um, of some kind, but I don't think it's a very good strategy. I think it's a strategy to get further funding and attention. In, in my opinion, that's what's happening. Um, I don't think it's a good strategy because to me, if you've been studying a thing for 22 years, yeah. you should have been able to eliminate a theory or two. Right. Um, or at least diminish them the on the list of got. likelihood. Right. You know, Science is so close right. to being a religion sometimes yeah. where like people are like, they don't want to let it go. This feels like yeah. the absence yeah. of Even science. though like, you, you it's, yeah, I, I would say, yeah, I think what you, I, I think I know what you mean, but I, I think Mike has like the, maybe we'll reflect the absence of science. Like people have these beliefs and they, they stick to them and it doesn't matter. Like so, the whole field of science. The point of it is to dismantle our very human nature and human instincts to yeah. stick to our gut beliefs. Right. Like that is what science is for. And that's why like yeah. geology and vaccines and astronomy are all in the same field of science is because it's not a thing you memorize. It's a method. Right. Science is a tactic for eliminating the options until all that's left is the truth. Yeah, it's like this and urge to prove yourself wrong, or it should be. Right. You have, if you're a good scientist, you try to prove yourself wrong. Right. In science, we have this thing um, where you start out with an experiment. You, It's called the null hypothesis. So the null hypothesis is always the null hypothesis is what if everything I think is wrong? Um, what if I'm wrong about this? And then your goal is to set up an experiment to test whether or not the null hypothesis is true. Your goal is never to prove you're right. Your goal is to see what chance you have that all of this is happening through random, through random action. Right. And that, you know, so you, you, the very nature of science in like every field, no matter what, the goal is to prove yourself wrong. Um, yeah, and so I think be. if and, you're and a good scientist, gonna, you have to go in with that mindset. And, and that's what I would expect from anyone who's in charge of um, preserving and studying a architectural marvel, or not uh, like an archaeological marvel, like the Hunley is. Right, right, to me, right. It's, it's, absolutely. It's a mind blowing piece of innovation. Like, yes, it was used by the South, and I know they're very protective of that history and that narrative and that, um, you know, whatever. Yeah. But it, it, no matter who controls the way the story is told it's this um pivotal point in maritime naval history it's the first time a submarine ever successfully sunk another uh ship and you know i don't know i think the word successful attack is maybe not entirely accurate because more people died on the hunley than than on the other side but it did sink a ship so okay it did they did what they wanted to do they never put an asterisk come back alive on that mission right right um Um, you know i think you're right and i think it comes back to like what we were talking about before with churchill like people want things to be pure good or pure evil yeah and 
people for some reason, and I, I think I'm guilty of this too. I think this is human nature. We don't want to have to process nuance. And I think that Hunley is nuanced. Mm-hmm. Like scientifically, this thing is amazing. Like it survived 150 years in salt water and yeah. it's iron. It should have rusted to shit and back like on day three. Right. Somehow it didn't. And it's Luckily, still intact. it was in Charleston Harbor where the sand right. shift like daily, right? And it buries built, and unburies itself. It's crazy. Yeah, they built jetties like five years later. And so I talked to one geologist from the U.S. Geological Survey, and that was his theory, which, you know, so I can't take credit for that. And I think he's right. But they yeah. built jetties like five years later that shifted the sands and covered it up. And it's just like... um it's just like Jurassic Park, where the DNA is covered in mud, right? It's right? just like lying there waiting. Yeah, no, it's crazy. And so, yeah, people, you can appreciate the scientific um, beauty of this while acknowledging the fact that it has this horrid dark history. Like, it well, it has this horrid history of, of definitely being used to defend slavery, of being built by slave owners. Um, their early prototypes, there's evidence that they forced slaves to test them. Right. Enslaved people, sorry. Yeah, to, to, test them to and, enslaved people were forced to go down and... and- basically put a show on with this thing right and they had no idea how to run it or pilot it or whatever and obviously they didn't and it was also a shit design right like it was a shit design that was immediately designed to sink so they they died a terrible death and like that we can acknowledge the scientific beauty of this as an artifact and as a case study and use it to learn in ways that enable us to understand our own modern physiology and again like i said prevent the next one and but at the same time recognize that it has a negative right But, but but by telling the story, um, I don't understand entirely what is diminished because the 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 fact remains that this incredibly ingenious machine was invented, born of necessity, by Confederates. So yeah, call them good, call mm-hmm. them bad, whatever whatever um, you know uh, preconceived notion you want to attach to any of that. They built this incredible machine and worked really hard to break this blockade. And I mean, it's 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 an incredible submarine. It's an incredible leap in naval uh design and these guys were really really great operators right like george dixon was obviously the best pilot that ever uh got behind the joystick of the hunley um several people uh including its (laughs) namesake went out there. i love that it was like a joystick it was Uh, that's pretty cool yeah (laughs) yeah 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 that's pretty neat and, and and a lot of that we didn't even know until we uh, until it was found and 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 brought up and we were able to see like oh it's actually got deadlights in it no one knew it had lights in it until it was found and all these things that we learned about it are enhanced yeah. by finding it and telling the true story of it and we're all better for what we know now and it and it just yeah. makes me like cringe um, when new discoveries like yours which I think is immensely significant in history it, it's this huge advance in our understanding of of the civil war and this really cool part of the civil war and it and and it bothers me that it's not just adopted like so many other um pieces of narrative that are way less proven or tested i mean this has a lot of weight to it 
And thank you. And, I agree. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I, right? I, I wrapped it up when I considered it done, but yeah, man. But um, I, I, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of emotion attached to controlling the narrative here, like you said. Right. So, um, one of the things that was a really big line in the sand for me was discovering that one of the historians attached to the official Hunley project had lied about a historical document. Um, so there's a historical document describing that test with the two enslaved men who died. And mm. this person said that he was transcribing it in his book. So nobody would ever need to go find the original document up in the National Archives again. Yeah. Hey, no need to look. Um, I got it right. Yeah. No need to look. I mean, I put it right here for you. And when he did that, he changed a word and he changed the word contraband, which was the union word for enslaved men mm-hmm. or enslaved men and women. And he changed it to men. And so he changed the story. So he lied about the transcript of the historical document and he changed the story so that it was no longer enslaved people. It was Confederate volunteers. And then he talked about how brave they were. So, I mean, you know, hopefully it's come across right now. I'm a little bit sassy. I don't trust anybody's transcriptions. I went and pulled the original document. If the document exists, let's go read that document, you know? Yeah, it wasn't that hard to find. It was in the National Archives. They're right. very organized. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that for me was a really huge line in the sand. Yeah. If you are lying about the past, then you are not a historian and right. you are, you have an agenda that is a negative. Right. Like, I, you know, like I said, my dad's from the South. I have family who fought on the Confederate side of the Civil War. My great grandfather was named Jefferson. Um, not not that one, but after yeah. that one. Yeah, yeah. Like, this is my family's history, too. And you can acknowledge the nuance of your ancestors yeah. and recognize that they were not pathological serial killers while saying, yes, they were in a geographical environment where there were a lot of problems. Yeah. And that's something we have to deal with as a country. And, like, just and acknowledge. I, and I think if you're lying inter- about it, you're not acknowledging it yeah and, and that that part still hits me weird because we revere so many civilizations that did terrible things but were also great like the romans or the greeks i mean we can all point it at, at um, yeah. countless examples of these right. societies that we hold on this pedestal of of perfection or um you know like oh they're just the, these great great societies but we're cool with all the bad stuff and i think that's fine we take them for what they are and we do yeah. that with our own nation's founding you know i mean we we kind of turn a blind eye to some of the horrible things that were involved in us becoming America. And we, we choose to honor and, and remember the good things. And there's nothing wrong with that, but let's not lie to ourselves and pretend the bad stuff never happened or overtly change documents to make it look as if bad things never happened. Yeah. Like that's, I know, right? Um, right. Yeah. Nuts. There's something about like where we feel personally responsible, even though we weren't alive at that time. And I, I don't really understand it. Maybe it's just because I'm slightly awkward as a I person, don't. but like, I, 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 I don't it, get it. It diminishes all of the other things that are true and are admirable yeah. about both sides. Um, neither side was Agreed. entirely right and neither side was entirely wrong. I, uh, I do feel like the cause of slavery was a terrible cause to go to war for, but that's my personal opinion. And that doesn't 
change anything. Everything still happened the way it was because I wasn't uh, around then, you know? So my You were there. Not at all. It None wasn't it your fault. None of us were. We could blame Derek because he's being a little yeah. quiet. But like, <laughs> quiet. I, I think I, we can get Derek away with a, it. Derek needs a potty break here. Oh, oh yeah. quiet. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, but yeah. we'll keep nerding out no, here. I, I think, yeah. like you said, it, it's, it's, it comes down to nuance and, and it's also the period, like the period where people lived in. You, you can't comprehend that you can't no. understand it unless you lived in that period no like there's no there's we try to translate it through where the how we live right now yeah but you know it just doesn't translate yeah. until unless you were you were there you know? yeah when absolutely think, one of the biggest examples of this as it as it ties into your book is um where the friends of the hunley is the organization that runs the um that runs the uh Derek's gonna be right back. He's gotta go yeah. I'll be right go back. potty. Gotta, We're using dad language here. Yeah. 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 I'm glad that he sent us BRV because this is definitely nineteen ninety five and we're on AOL instant messenger. <laughs> GTL. <laughs> yeah. Um so like uh the Friends of the Hunley is the organization that runs the museum where the Hunley is um housed and being restored and studied and also they're in charge of the uh everything that that museum portrays and the way it's portrayed right so kind of it's actually a little bit more complicated than that in a sort of interesting way so the hunley commission is in charge of everything about the way the Hunley is portrayed oh and the reason that's important is because the hunley commission is part of the south carolina it's a south carolina government organization now again why that matters is because the state of south carolina has its own freedom of information act for their organ for their government so the hunley commission is subject to open records laws all of their records all of their documents are subject to the freedom of information act but the friends of the hunley is a non-profit that was started by the hunley commission seems to employ like two or three people and is housed for free in a government-owned building. Oh, okay. So the Friends of the Hudley, they are arguing, is not subject to the Freedom of Information Act. So again, in my opinion, this is a shell organization that seems like it has possibly been set up to shield the Hudley records from public records access laws. Right. So that's Crazy. why that's important. Yeah. Wow. Derek loves conspiracies. You may know. <laughs> yeah. So this yeah. is right. I mean, out. It's like, honestly, not... I it, I think that it's like very open. Like this yeah. is very traceable. I can back up everyone I just said. Right, so like right. the paperwork is there. And I don't think so, they're yeah. ashamed of the fact that they want control of the narrative. They're, they're not like no, trying they, to do that in back rooms. They're very open. It's in yeah. their contracts with the U.S. government, which right. the U.S. government agreed to. Is yeah. They give South, state of South Carolina, South Carolina government control of the narrative. And the current, the Hunley Commission, as far as my last update, it has always been at least half uh, members of the Sons of Confederate Veterans. Wow! And so, its yeah. funding is that the reason for the defensiveness? Is that well, they, no? They it's control of the narrative. They and, and it's hard well, to yeah, say because I guess where I'm going with all this what? is so they don't want to include this theory. Would, I, would we call it your theory, Rachel, or did someone else propose the blast trauma theory in the case of the Hunley? Um, I'm 
I call it my theory. It okay. was like me and I my do. advisor kind of working it out together. Okay. Yeah. Like it was the subject of repeated conversations between me and him. So I do think he deserves, he deserves credit. But okay. Like, so also- yeah, every, every scientific work is a team. I sure. just feel like taking personal credit, it, but our team came up. Yeah. With this so I'll call yeah. it your theory in the collective sense of you and your, your, your associates. And okay. it, do you think that their reluctance to adopt and include your theory in the museum display in the options of voting what happened to the Hunley and solving the Hunley mystery and all that, their reluctance to include this, I I think, uh, virtually proven theory um, stems from the, the, the mystery being the selling point or how does, how does your theory, how does the crew dying of blast trauma as opposed to drowning or asphyxiating, how does that harm them and their narrative? What are they afraid of? Mike, you're asking questions I don't know the answers to. <laughs> what, are, what are your thoughts I mean, on I that? Can't, I, can't I can't really my, speak for anyone else. I, can't I don't wrap know. my head around that. Like, I think the mystery is a selling point. Okay. I think there's also, I think it's a selling point for fundraising because it's, if you keep funding us, we might solve this. Oh. Um, yeah. I think that's a consistent theme in their fundraising literature. Okay. Um, I think there's also, there's also some degree of territorialism, which I do think some of that is normal because if you've got people who've been working on this thing for literally decades and then someone comes along and is like, Hey, I came up with this theory that none of you have ever saw. Yeah, like I did a school project and <laughs> yeah. yeah. So they've really tried to marginalize me as a researcher and as a scientist. Like uh-huh. every time I've talked about it, they've just referred to me as a student. They'll be like, this student did this. So the, the implication of their wording is that I'm like some yeah. high schooler with a project or some undergraduate with a project. And I was like, right. This was my doctoral dissertation defense. Like I wrote this paper after I had defended my PhD and I was a full blown PhD writing this research. Yeah. And paper. using language like that so, automatically diverts from the substance of the project. Even if this was like a middle schooler project, you can't deny the data. It would right. be a brilliant middle schooler, I suppose. But regardless right. of who and <laughs> in what capacity did it, the the facts are there. You've laid them out very right. clearly. Exactly. Like it's data. Good data doesn't, it doesn't matter really where it came from. If you're, right. if you're looking at the raw data, like obviously people can layer biased interpretation over it, but like, sure, you know, the raw data doesn't lie. Not a lot of interpretation so, there. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, I don't really know. Um, before my paper came out, which was in August of 2017, I sent them a care package. Um, I'd like 3D printed little Hunleys out of my model, my computer model. And so I've, I've been like 3D printing them. Wow. Um, and so I sent them like 3D, little 3D printed Hunleys with like little ribbons with like Clemson colors. And you I, are kind of like, nerdy. I'm so agree. nerdy. Derek, <laughs> I'm very open about this. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> Given yeah. the chance, I will talk to you about physics. <laughs> so I think that's also part of why I wanted to write a book. I was like, so let me get this straight. You guys are going to pay me to talk about science. <laughs> like, yeah. yes. Um, yeah, no. So I, and I, I wrote a note and I like typed it up and emailed it to a friend to have him like proofread it. I was like, make sure there's no way this can come across as insincere. Like he's, you know, my most like emotionally sensitive friend in a good way. I'm not calling him like a crybaby. Like he's just very into high, other people uh, in a good way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. High emotional in a good way. Yeah. Are you? Yeah. I'm emotional IQ. Yes. That's yeah. a better way to put it. Mm-hmm. So he was like, he like tweaked one word. He's like, this is great. This is really good. So I wrote it down. I wrote them like a little card and I was, I offered to like pretend we'd worked on it together the whole time. 
I was like, I really want to use this for fundraising for you guys. Like there's going to be media about this. I want to use it for fundraising. Like I really respect everything you've done. Like everything you've done has been obviously a major contributor to any science that I've done. And that's, that's absolutely true. Like there's no way that I would have been able to do. Yeah. There's no way I would be able to do my project without their work backing it. For sure. Um, and they, I sent it via certified mail. And so like, I know they got it and they just never wow. replied. Um, and so that was obviously kind of disappointing. Like I looked forward to like pretending it was a unified project and like working together to raise public awareness and raise fundraising to preserve this amazing artifact. And they just instead like issued this really shitty press release, um, calling me a student and, Wow. kind of marginalizing me a little bit and um they did some other stuff that but, shows yeah to me just reeks of arrogance and ignorance uh it wasn't my favorite um i did learn my dad deserves like an oscar for acting dude that was the best that was the best thing to come out of all this um he was scheduled for hip replacement surgery the november following um my paper release yeah. and he, so he knew this was coming for a long time so in april like long before any drama had really started he wanted to plan a trip together that re- required a lot of walking before he had to go through his surgery in the recovery period. So he was like, let's go to the Henley. They're having like a fundraiser in November. We'll just go. We'll go for the tour. You love this summary. We'll walk around Charleston. We'll like invite our family friends who I'm very close with. And I was like, this sounds super fun. So I just like called him crying. And I, you know, after all this shit that the friends of Hunley was doing, I, yeah. I just called him crying with like, cause it had all built up on me so much. And I was like, I don't want to go on this trip. I don't, I don't want to do this. Like, let's just cancel all of it. And he's like, fuck no. He's <laughs> like, we're not going. He's like, we're going on the goddamn tour. You see your favorite summary. And like, <laughs> so. We, I mean, we just didn't like say anything. We just went and it was just like a family time and that was fine. But then in the middle of the tour, the tour guides had modified the tour so that they were shit talking me as part of the tour. And so oh. I don't, yeah, I don't know if they are doing this still, but at the time they, they got up there and they were like that girl. It was always that girl, which oh. first of all, not yeah, the right audacity. language. Wow. Yeah. That, oh. that, um, really show your hand there with that yeah no i just like sat there and my but my dad he would like ask questions he was he was like oh really is that how it works but they they were explaining this stuff to him and saying all this stuff about me and they were saying that like i snuck onto a military base and stole government data and the navy disagreed with me and i'd been banned from working for the government ever again and like literally all of this is completely untrue like i was working for the navy when i was doing this project i was part of the need you know the information yeah it was as far as i understand he just he just had like this full deadpan like oh man that's so interesting (laughs) it was amazing it was amazing he he deserves an oscar like my mom's best friend had to leave because she started crying because of some of the stuff they were saying about me so she had to like walk out because they were telling, they were telling uh, my dad that I paid to self-publish on the internet. Like my my results weren't actually published in an academic journal. What? It was yeah, it was all false. It was all complete lies. Ew. But, um, wow. Yeah, I'm big ew. Wow. God damn. That, that's interesting Man, in that itself. Like me. 
Yeah. What is going on with this, <laughs> well, this I just, pushback? I, you know, honestly, uh, before I read your book, I'd already be, been interested in the Hunley story. I love Civil War history. I read like everything I can find. And I had already read Tom Chafin's book, which is a great book. Okay. Um, and he wrote yes, it. Tom Chafin is a fantastic historian. Yeah, it was a great book, but he was working so, on limited yeah. information. I don't even think the uh, recovery process had gone that far. So you could tell that some of his information was somewhat limited to what we know about the Hunley now. Um, but he did a great job of telling the story, telling it from a very keel, uh, even keeled, you know, kind of a perspective. Um, he wasn't against the the Southern cause, but he wasn't all, you know, full blown states, uh, you know, war between the states guy or any of that kind of stuff. He was totally even keeled. It was a great story. And that made me super interested. in Yeah, it. that's actually it's a good thing to plug. If anyone's looking for like my book, obviously, I have three narratives. And so I wasn't able sure. to go into the full daily nitty gritty of the story of the Hunley. Um, that would have been like a 7,000 page book. But <laughs> yeah. Tom Chafin, and that's spelled C-H-A-F-F-I-N, he wrote a book about the Hunley that I really consider to be um, like the keystone historical piece about the submarine. And so yes. he did a fantastic job of getting into more detail about the history of the submarine and its use. Um, and he's, he's just a really good historian overall. Like he's very neutral. Yes. He does a good job of writing without judgment or taking sides, things like that. And that's but what you want. He, that's what yeah. I want. That's what I yeah. love. I just want, what do we know? Okay. Don't tell me how to think <laughs> exactly. about it. I'll, I'll do that exactly. part, but tell me what we know. And he did a great job of outlining the mystery because at that point, um, I mean, he was still working off of like historical accounts for the the theories of what had happened. He wasn't working off a lot of yes. physical information, so he was still, you know, the the blue lights seen on the water, and the I think he even gave a lot of weight to the theory of the Hunley being sucked into the hole of the Housatonic and that um, mm -hmm. early story and all that. Uh, but he did a great job of 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 telling all the different ideas that people had, and and he told the story really well. And then your book, like put a cap on all of it so perfectly uh, explored thanks. all the different options <laughs> and debunked some of the you know more uh kind of out there ideas and yeah yeah you know which yeah fun. i, I, mean, I definitely was i was working with a couple more years of information than he was yeah, he did totally. his and you had a different, many, several years before mine and a different field um, of he expertise actually, than he did you know yeah he and i have actually since my book connected just uh -huh. over our mutual love of this story of the Hunley. Yeah. Um, and he, like, we've only sent a couple emails, but he seems a very nice person as well. So, like, I really respect that he came at this as, like, a neutral historian. And, you guys should hook up and know. make, like, a united front for truth in this story. Because <laughs> uh, there's so much opposition out there with just bogus info. And, and you know, it, that's just exhausting. Yeah, is that really what you like, want to do with your thing. life? Yeah, <laughs> that's the, the thing. Of it. Yeah. Like the, the thing, and this has happened too, like, because like I mentioned briefly, um, a lot of what I do is respiratory science and looking at respiratory trauma, because that's kind of the link between all these wildly different sure. environments I study, like blast underwater, outer space, you're going to run out ox of oxygen first, um, you know, or your lungs are going to get injured. Right. That's really like kind of the link there. Um, and that's how I started is respiratory trauma. A lot of the trauma that we're seeing with COVID-19 and long COVID is actually remarkably similar to blast trauma. Wow. So, yeah, a lot of the lung fibrosis and the lung damage that the disease causes is eerily similar to getting blown up. Wow. Um, but that really brings into context, like, the amount of misinformation and the amount of time 
you can sink into trying to disassemble misinformation on the internet is infinite. Yeah. So like, this is not what I want to do with my life. I don't want to be the crusader to just like promote my own cause. Um, you know, I put it out there. I wrote the scientific papers. There are three scientific papers out there. Uh, there's a Smithsonian article. There's a book, like there's a couple podcasts with lovely people like Mm -hmm. yourselves. Like, uh, you know, I, I enjoy these types of conversations where we just get to like kind of be nerdy about history. These are really fun for me. Um, but aside from that, I don't really feel the need to like spend my life trying to, um, pull the veil back against or around from around like these people who I think are doing things on purpose. Yeah. Yeah. The truth stands on its own. Yeah. And if you find the truth, it's there. And like I said, you put this out there. I mean, the book is there. trying to lead into conspiracy theories. I see you. I see you. What what role did aliens play in the Hundley story? Oh, you know what? I think (laughs) Horace was an alien. Like, I think that's that's why he was trying to claw his way out. Like, he could have with his alien talents. It's just that they were like... Yeah. Restricted by his human suit. Horace Hundley. <laughs> <laughs> that makes you think of Men in Black. It's like, like it doesn't fit very well, you know? Oh, man. Well, so- it's also kind of fucked up because, like, Horace Hundley, like, if he was an alien, then aliens were cool with slavery because he was a slave owner, Ooh. man. So this is, like, really going to have to, we're going to have to revisit some oh. alien visitation. Yeah. Nefarious. <laughs> man. Yeah. So Horace Hunley kind of strikes me as like an Elon Musky kind of a guy. So, <laughs> I don't know how, how how like apt that is, but he's like super rich and kind of a fanatic, and then just started going after this submarine idea. And then when a a pilot was needed, he was just like, "Oh, I can do this!" Like he's just kind of like, "I can yeah. do everything." Yeah. And, and... It's not the most terrible metaphor. <laughs> like he was super rich, but then also like he most of his money from was from elsewhere, right? Like yeah. my understanding of Elon Musk is that daddy had some emerald mines that are maybe a little sketchy. I don't know if that's oh, true or know. not. This yeah. is like Twitter level bet- vetting on my part. <laughs> but uh, the same, like with Horace Hudley, his younger sister married a substantially older, very incredibly like billionaire level rich dude. Yeah. That was so Barrow, right? he kept, yeah, Barrow. He kept going to brother-in-law and be like, can I have some more money for this? <laughs> so, yeah. so I'm building a submarine to keep sinking. I would have built uh, a submarine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I would have built a submarine. <laughs> exactly. Oh, man. So I don't think that's like the most terrible. I don't think you're terribly wrong. The uh, fact that he just thought he could pilot it that- and he was like, everybody get in. Yeah. Well, he wrote a letter <laughs> directly so to Beauregard, which Beauregard was the general, Derek, in charge of the... um charleston area more than that but he was the one basically sole control over what went on in charleston and beauregard was tired of people uh dying inside this fish boat and so he was just like uh we're not using this anymore like this is not helping it's it's actually um more dangerous to the people that are in it than the enemy yeah so we're not going to use this thing anymore and uh hunley took it upon himself to write a letter directly to beauregard was basically like hey i'm the most qualified i'm your man i can take this thing give it to me and i'll show you what it can do and uh he said it and killed everybody yeah Yeah. and then he just like plows it right into the ground (laughs) i I gotta know with these cranks right i i'm i try to imagine everybody had a hand crank was it was it something like this where they're just doing this the entire time and so uh, uh so derek was uh Again, podcast. So yeah. we're gonna, Derek was using yeah. 
basically like bicycle pedals and moving yeah. his hands like bicycle pedals. Mm-hmm. It's not terribly off, but both hands were working in unison. So okay. everyone had their two hands that they were essentially imagine putting two hands on one bicycle pedal and then your neighbor is on the other bicycle pedal. Oh, so gotcha. the crank okay. shape, it, it, this might be Carner, Detroit girl. Do you know mm-hmm. what like a crankshaft looks like in a car where it's um, like a long thing and there's like all the thing, mm, uh, I'm not explaining so. this well. I, I'm not I explaining think, this yeah. well. Anyway, the yeah. whole goal, the whole goal is to turn the crankshaft, and so it's uh-huh. got a bunch of things down it that are all offset from each other slightly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, so overall, it has the effect yeah. of like a spiral made out of handles so going down the lane. Google images, uh, Hunley yeah. search, and you'll see a bunch yes. of them. There's really rad diagrams. It's basically, just like a long steel cigar tube. Well, iron, cast iron, right? Yeah. Uh, so a long cast iron tube, a 40 foot long cast iron tube. Well, rod uh, iron, rod iron, iron and cast iron. Okay. And is both, yeah. And, uh, so, uh, so it's got like this long. I don't want to get any emails saying, well, actually. Oh, yeah. Do you get those? <laughs> yeah, like, I'm not trying to be correcty. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm not trying to be correcty. I just don't, I don't, I don't want your well, actually emails. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, we're just hanging anyway, folks. Like, yeah, keep your, please. keep your facts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So it's just like this long, crooked crank that runs down the length of the, of the submarine connected to a propeller and some gears and stuff. But like seven guys okay. sit on a bench along one side of the of the submarine, and they're all just basically crammed shoulder to shoulder, cranking away on this thing to propel it forward and backward. And then a captain sits um, under the front conning tower, the little tower where he can kind of see out of it. And that, that sounds like the most uncomfortable. Well, maybe not the most uncomfortable place. Definitely on the cranking bench is the most uncomfortable place. But sitting on that tiny bench yeah. <laughs> where Dixon was sitting with his head like in the conning tower, like sounds just. Awful. I can't believe any human would willingly get in this thing. All of it sounds shitty. Yeah. Um, the one thing I think the benefit to being captain is first of all, you don't have to crank. And then yeah. I guess two things. But then second of all, you can stand up. So like he could kind of stand up and like stick his head out. You know, I don't think it's comfortable. Yeah, but like there's something good. This is why we all want the exit row seat, right? Like just being able to move your legs is a benefit. It's true. So, and if shit hits the fan, you can stand I, up and get out that hatch. Theoretically. You're uh, the first one out. You, the first guy and the last guy were like the highest ranking people. Yeah. And I suspect it's because they could get out first, personally. Yeah. But, speaking of, speaking yeah. of bathrooms, uh, is it just, it's a bucket. It's a bucket. They had a bucket. Oh, okay. Yeah, they had a bucket. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't. Okay. So there, there's a famous painting of the Hunley and there's like the bucket is in the famous painting. Oh. And then there was a bucket found inside the Hunley. And so we also know like this was, this was the piss bucket, right? Yeah. And so there's speculation that like the pa- bucket in the painting is the piss bucket and more concrete speculation that the one found inside the boat the boat was this bucket and i just like sometimes imagine what poor undergraduate student was the one that had to clean that out because like when they brought it up in 2000 they're like this is antique this is it i'm uh, hoping it was just urine we're assigning this artifact to you you. just like wait a minute is this a shitter right yeah, exactly. Oh, because like, that was intact, just, you're saying, right? Yeah, it really was intact yeah, they in found there. The Holy bucket, cow. Everything. Wow. <laughs> so, like, some undergrad yeah. had. Yeah. I, I assume it was an undergrad because if I was in charge of that lab, that's what it would be. Hey, Bill, this looks like good work for you. Hey, new guy, yeah. get over here. We got something for you. Yeah, this is a great. This is a great student project. <laughs> yeah, I think, and that's, and that's part of so. what makes the Hunley story so interesting, none of which your theory threatens, is the the yeah. 
pristine time capsule that the sub was. Yeah. It was found like sealed in sand, so it was preserved really well, and everything in it, including the crew, um, was just there perfectly. Uh, and everything in their pockets, from the buttons of their jacket to um, the gold coin in Dixon's pocket, obviously. But yeah, the, yeah. the, the piss bucket, like their pipes, everything is just in there. Yeah. And we it's amazing. Together. There's a burnt matchstick. They found a wow. burnt matchstick. Wow. Because like, they used it to light their little lantern. Like the amount yeah. of effort that's gone into Oh, you mean the blue lantern? Is... It was definitely that one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the blue lantern that was actually white. I love but... that. You're the only one who's ever outlined that piece because everyone knows the blue light story. Um, and they yes. all, they all basically, oh, the blue light was seen as if that was fact because one guy said that the, you know, the signal was observed Dude. or, you know, the, oh uh, my God. I also like, uh, I'm glad you touched on that because that's the biggest question I get. Okay. So let's just clarify. Uh, Cause I'm assuming there are people who haven't read the book. This is not really like a big spoiler, but um, there's the story of the blue light where the crew of the Hudley was supposed to send like this blue light to signal for victory on their way back. So there are allegedly these like three different eyewitness accounts saying that they saw blue light on the water. So, but if you actually read them, that's not what they said. And it drives me bananas because everyone's like, well, then how did the blue light happen? It was like, they don't say we saw the Hunley light a blue light after their bomb went off. That is not what they say at all. They're like at different time points. Like one guy's like, oh yeah, the Hunley asked us for a signal for the return. I was like, they don't say when. They yeah. could have asked that all the way out. On their way out. And then That'd be a good yeah, time a, to say, hey, guys, we're heading out. Right. Like, the fire would be great. Go light up for us to come back. <laughs> right, exactly. And then there's another guy. The other two basically are equivalent to saying, like, oh, yeah, we were all, like, hanging out. We were waiting for rescue. And then there were like, there was, like, a blue light somewhere. They don't say it was from the Hunley. Yeah. Why the shit would the Hunley stay where they just sank an enemy ship and light a big visible light like everybody was using this stuff to signal to each other yeah like they the just whole saw point, off someone the whole point of what we're yeah. in is to be a stealthy unseen underwater sub and we're just going to surface yeah. and swing around a blue light right next to the right. ship and all the other so, union ships yeah. not only that but we're going to stay here for an hour right and then surface right. and then swing a lantern around <laughs> well, i love your it explanation that it was probably sense. one of the recovery so. boats from the cannon day um, because they were also under orders yeah. to show a blue light so that they didn't get fired on because yeah. the ships were basically exactly. under orders to fire on any approaching ship. So that's a light to say like, hey, don't shoot us. We're here to fish your dudes out of the water. Um, and, exactly. And those, like, hey, please don't fire at us. And those super obvious <laughs> so. facts that are easily researched um, are just overlooked because they don't uh, contribute to the narrative. But I don't even understand why. Like, how I, does... I will... I will kind of interrupt you. Like, I don't think easily researched is fair. Oh, um, okay. Like, fair enough. Yeah. Like, these, this is the product of, like, me putting that all together is the product of, like, probably a solid week of work in the archives. Wow. And, I, yeah, like, archival work, I mean, my neck hurts just thinking about it. Um, I love archival work, but you got to go in there and you got to read old timey pieces of paper with terrible handwriting. Oh, and yeah. like, imagine committing to that for like a solid week. And you also are never guaranteed to find what you're looking for. Yeah. Gosh, um, I wouldn't even, yeah, where do so you even it, start to find abstract information yeah, like that? You know, exactly. You, you, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I start with the archives rooms at the National Archives or the Library of Congress. 
Congress. Yeah. Um, that's where like a lot of the most useful Civil War records are. But it's very, you got to know what records to pull and you got to be able to figure that out. And um, that's, that's a huge amount of work. So yeah, now... It's very easily researched because I it's put there. it in a book. Right. Okay. <laughs> but, that, that's probably why I say. It. Yeah, yeah, but it, it's there, guys. there, Come there on. are good. There, uh, there are good reasons why this stuff takes a long time to like get out of the records. Like, For there's sure. just such a um, huge, massive amount of documents that it's it's really hard to it's really hard to find. Yeah. So. Yeah. And and I think the motivation yeah. has you to be. You must be, be there. a fast reader too. I'd imagine. <laughs> Can you imagine reading that old timey 19th century handwritten? stuff like it's so flourishy and and it's not yeah, it's not yeah, a quick yeah, read okay so this is a misconception as well so oh, okay they the okay so <laughs> i'm being corrected a lot in this yeah i'm sorry i'm just <laughs> no, really like invite- i feel that i feel the <laughs> yeah, need to emphasize how big of a pain in the ass this, this is, is why we invite <laughs> smart people on the yeah. show yeah <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just like people who've been a lover, like yeah. in this specific, very specific field. But um, ev- there's a real, I had this misconception too. Absolutely. I had the same thing. We see these documents and they are beautiful and they're tightly written. And everyone's like, oh, I get this all the time. It's like, oh, well, at least the handwriting book then was better. No, it wasn't. Uh-uh. Those documents you see, the, that's a profession. Right. Those are people called scribes who wrote that because they had they had a job because they had neat handwriting. The rest of people were absolutely just as crappy as we are today. Yeah, totally. So, yeah, it's just like trying to read a bunch of high schoolers' diaries. Handwritten diaries. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pain in the ass. Little doodles in the I corner. I love it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Sometimes there are. <laughs> so. Man. Yeah, that is so cool. Like yeah. it's 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 really neat. Um, that like the mystery of the Hunley is such a fun mystery, and it's and it's really, uh, I I don't know. It, to to me, it just bothers me that answering the mystery or providing a new way of looking at it is is shunned at a place like a museum that I would love to go, and I still will go, but I'm much less excited about it than I would have been otherwise. Um, because <laughs> it would be really cool to go see. Like, okay, cool, let me go see the Hunley. It's still sitting in a pool of solution, right? It's still there and on yeah. display, and you can go see it. And uh, it would be really cool to uh see what's known. Like, what do we as a people collectively know today? What information are we working with? And knowing that they're turning their back. Uh, on such solid information is like disappointing because then you kind of walk through there going like, Oh, that's what they want me to see. Oh, that's what they want me to see. I'm not walking through there saying, Oh, look what we know. Look what we know. And this is so interesting. I feel, <coughs> feel like I'm being spoon fed what someone else wants me to know. And it's so much less yeah. enlightening and intriguing. Um, I, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you feel that. Yeah. I, I understand where you're coming from. Um, I've had a couple more years to like adapt to this. I think Um, it's been a couple years for me. So I just have a Zen mindset about this at this point, but I do think the museum is really worth seeing just because they have pulled all these artifacts out and they've done an amazing job of conserving them. And there's a lot of display information about the conservation. And so the conservation process is absolutely fascinating. Like the amount of stuff they've had to do with all these different materials. Yeah. So you do get to like go and see how they did that and see what they brought up. Like they have bandanas. They had like the bandanas around, like down in the village where the skulls were falling. That's so cool. I've never heard of any other artifact that has that level of preservation. Wow. Um, 
Yeah, these they have their boots, like the boots that they were wearing. Um, wow. it's that's just insane that's to me. And so I think it's yeah, like I'd I think it's really worth stuff. seeing for that perspective of like what they what this group of people has done in terms of the conservation of these relics and, sure. and making sure that they're preserved is is genuinely amazing. And so like as long as you just come in and go with that attitude yeah. and you don't like don't expect to be like yeah. why are you guys doing this? Um, yeah, <laughs> like I'm I'm, I'm really we should go together, so, uh, Mike. Uh, yeah. We should, but you might not want to be with me because I'm very vocal. So I'll just be kind of like, oh yeah, what about this? I'll be that guy yelling <laughs> yelling questions from the yeah, crowd. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> Yeah, I'll be, uh, I'll be mad too, but I'm at fine least with you that. can like okay. <laughs> take the anger. You can take the majority of the anger. Derek will just, just like take yeah. one step away from me, so it doesn't look like we're together on the tour. Be like, man, <laughs> this guy. Yeah. Yeah. Fighting. I, I want to fight him as it is right now. I'm I'm angry, man. I mean, uh. the other thing that I would request, um, yeah, since we are recording this, and if you guys do that, or if any people do that, like. I think questions are fine, but also, like, oh, yeah. please keep in mind that, like, you're, the tour guides are not the people making these yeah, stories. Yeah. They're just, like, they're just, docents. They're just yeah. like, people who are excited about history. <laughs> We're just, right. like, showing tourists yeah. around. No, no, I'd like, be very... Like, it's not their fault. <laughs> yeah. I'd be very cool about uh, so, yeah. uh, relentless questions. Yeah, I would be cool yeah, about that. Yeah, I think that they're being fed bad information, yeah. but, like, that doesn't mean that you're getting a tour from the oh. people making those choices. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so information... Yeah, okay, so brings me to something that's not even attached to your theory or... or or anything at some point you were approached by someone in Europe who had discovered um, some of the lineage of crewman Carlson and he was always just known as JF yes. Carlson right and this guy had mm-hmm. had taken the ball and ran with it and did a bunch of research because he was from Denmark or what country was it Denmark he yeah um it's um it's Denmark. So it's a little island. I'm not going to try and pronounce it because it has letters I oh. don't know. Oh, we'll just say meaning Denmark, like then. the slashes in them and yeah. there's smooshed together. Punctuation yeah. We've never so seen. it's an yeah. island. Um yeah. well, so this guy- I was like, this looks like an A and an E, but they're smooshed together and that O hasn't lied through it. I don't know what this means. Well and but, so um, and, and it, Yeah, so he's point- from Denmark. And, and he this- so the guy that the guy that approached me, he's one of the lead archivists at the Den the Danish National Archives. Okay. So reputable yeah. guy with access to information and mm-hmm. he um was interested in this story and he went took it upon himself to go research the lineage of his countryman, this guy on the Hunley, Crewman Carlson. And his name wasn't known. It was always just J.F. Carlson. Mm-hmm. And this guy found that he was Johann Frederick Carlson. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Like, that's the kind of contribution to history that yes. we all just salivate over. Like, I love it's that so stuff. It's so cool. Totally. And um, so I went on I to know. the Friends of the Hunley um, website just to kind of cruise through and, and see, like, have they have they changed at all, like, the theories pages and all that? And and uh, they, they list the crew, and it's still just J.F. Carlson. Like, Really? Yeah. Like, what? Yeah. They only, so I think it was, it was literally just a couple months ago. I want to say two months ago. They finally acknowledged oh, the archivist. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, Yon Adam, Adam Krona is his name. I'm probably doing part of that wrong. I've, tr- I've had him send me an audio file, yeah. but, um, <laughs> you, but um, I love that. I, I, I'm trying my best. I'm trying my best. But, yeah. Um, yeah. No, that's um, cool. And great work yeah, on he, his part. He, and that's, that's he how did we amazing stories. work. And, yeah. He picked away at it over years. He did, he did that exactly that. And that's finding this guy's name was a labor of love for him because he loves nautical and maritime history and he had access to the archives. And so he was there every day for work. And so he spent years picking through documents, wow. looking for 
Johann Frederick Carlson in the documents and finally finding him. He reached out to me because he had the similar experience where wow. he tried to reach out to the friends of Hunley and he wasn't able that to That was get my next question is, is why you? And that answer. Yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. So he found me on the internet as someone else who had talked about the Henley and he was like, wow. Hey, I, like I, I found this guy and he found his life story. Like he found where he'd grown up. He found how he'd gotten to America. Like, this is a person who doesn't necessarily have a dog in the fight in the American Civil War. Right. And he, Johann Frederick Carlson, um, both, and Johann Adam Cronach both don't have a bias here. Right. But Johann Frederick Carlson, it turns out, came over and he was paid to enlist so some rich guy didn't have to go to war. Uh. So he kind of gets like his story and his identity back a little bit of like, this was just someone who was trying to feed himself. Right. Right. Yeah, that, that's a cool way to look at it. It's not just, you know, guy X. Yeah. He's like like a guy in there, you know, with a history and a family. And that's what we all strive yeah. to do in history is is learn the whole story and add to the narrative. And and um, that guy did a great job finding that. And then I'm really oh, glad amazing. to hear that. Absolutely they, amazing. I'm really glad to hear they finally incorporated that because, like, well, I mean, that's that's uh you know that's what we all do here, you know, and there should be more coming yeah. down the pipe. And we'll all continue to learn. Me and, too. Yeah. Yeah, so that- I was so excited for work. Like it was years after he sent it to them. Wow. Something like eight years after he sent it to them, but they finally acknowledged it and published it in one of their their um, publications. And so and they that's him? really great and that's validating. Um yeah, they did. Cool. So all right, so they're capable. All right, yeah. they're just slow. So yeah. better late than never. All right, so fingers crossed. We can all be patient. Um, I- yeah, I'm not optimistic, but that's all right. Um, there's another, there's a, there's a female scientist who, um, worked on the Hunley project for a long time. Her name is Maria Jacobson and, um, she did her doctoral work on the Hunley and she was supposed to have graduated, I believe in 2010 or 2012, one of those two. And, uh, they still have not allowed her to publish her dissertation. Wow. So it's over a decade now wow. she has been denied her PhD. Um, because Ridiculous. of the, yeah. Wow. So. Wow. Well, we can all visit the, uh, visit the museum and politely, yeah. uh, ask yeah. Yeah. relentless I'll be questions. Polite. And make I, I them known. I'm not yeah. going to I was just kidding. Well, no, yeah. That, okay. that the, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, really... I figured you guys were kidding. I just also wanted yeah. to like throw that yeah, out there. Like, yeah, yeah. Course, sure. say, like I'm not yeah. trying to incite people uh-huh. harassing, like the, <laughs> the people that aren't the problem here. So yeah, like, yeah. yeah. No, and it's important that they know they get that feedback, uh, instead of just a bunch of blank nodding heads when they're telling the story, it's important they get the feedback yeah. that, that, that they know people care, uh, you know, about that. So, um, we'll see what happens there. And I don't know if they've changed their, their theory summaries, you know, where you like at the end of the tour, you vote for one of the, like, Hey, you know, vote for one of these options on one of their theories. They talk about, um, they use the word concussion, which, uh, irks me after learning what you taught me. Um, (laughs) so, uh, concussion damaged the vessel and caused it to sink. Like, no, uh, was that included before your research? That? that was before my research, oh, okay. but it's also um, it's also an antiquated terminology for sure. blasts. So yeah. the the terminology of concussion is no longer used specifically because it's so confusing right. and it was applied to so many things. Yeah. So concussion obviously is what we have traditionally used for head trauma as well from people who get hit in the head. Now the field is actually starting to move from that as well to be more specific. 
con- what we traditionally called as concussion in the brain trauma world is now con- called more MTBI, which is mild, t- mild traumatic brain injury. And then in terms of blasts, when they talk about a concussive wave, that's a completely different thing. So they're actually talking about the pressure wave or the shock wave, but that's no longer a term that's used because it's confusing. So essentially one of the tactics, and you can find this on YouTube, it's still up there. One of the tactics that this group has used to attempt to discredit me, um, they have shown up at my lectures before. So I gave a lecture at the U.S. National Archives and they sent people to show up and kind of harass me during the question section. Wow. And they intentionally try to blur the line between concussion in the sense of the pressure wave from an explosion and concussion meaning head trauma from getting hit in the head. And those are very different concepts that, again, we no longer use that terminology because it's so confusing. Um, And so they've used that as a little bit of a tactic to try and say the U.S. Navy studied the theory of concussion and found it didn't work. And I'm like... Other people at the U.S. Navy studied the theory that they hit their heads and found out that wasn't true. But those people and I are, in fact, good friends. And we talk to each other all the time. Right. And they're in chapter six of the book because I was also working for the Navy. So none of what you're saying really makes sense. I admire your Zen attitude towards this uh, (laughs) because it's it's um yeah, it's frustrating you know like it's a dose it's a dose to take. Yeah. um yeah mm-hmm. there have been times where i've like been upset about it sure but um yeah this is actually probably the most open we have talked about it at all is with you guys mm-hmm. um i've i've not talked about it for the most part just because i want the focus to be on the science yeah. God, pay attention to drama. And like, it certainly isn't. And you know, so. I think, and I think it can be frustrating if you know this particular group doesn't adopt it in the official museum and all that. But that museum reaches such a fraction of the total number of people interested in this story, and your book is able to reach uh, a much greater percentage of that group of people yeah. like myself i've never been to the museum but i've always been a civil war enthusiast and and uh love the story of the hunley and when i found your book to me it was entirely eye-opening and super awesome uh and, well thanks and, and I, I know you guys talk about dad stuff were... a lot and i think yeah. like dads dads are my main market <laughs> so, <laughs> i totally oh, okay. yeah yeah totally sorry i didn't mean to cut hey, you off we are. Man, I didn't mean 25 to cut you off. I you there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no totally totally so i mean yeah, I, we, we should probably wrap up too mike because i gotta okay. i gotta yeah. head out here yeah do you think rachel if, if people want to okay. follow you and find out about your next book or see what you're up to how do we how do we follow you uh, I'm most easily found on Twitter. That's where I think I'm the most active. Um, it's at Underwater Lance. Uh, I will say, if anyone wants to harass my brother, that is more than welcome because he took the handle at Science Lance. Oh. So, <laughs> so have at it. Blow him <laughs> but, um, up. Yeah. <laughs> blow him up and don't tell him why. <laughs> but um, we have a very strong relationship. This is hilarious for me. He'll find very but, cool. um, yeah, so I'm most active on Twitter. Um, I also have a website. RachelLanceWrites.com. Um, so that's where I 
do a haphazard job of updating my book stuff, but um, new books coming out are on there. They'll be on Twitter. There's a Facebook page. I'm not going to lie to you. I don't really maintain it. So I'm not a big on social media. I'm kind of a private person, um, but I do read all my emails myself. So if you contact me through my website, I I work at that. So Very cool. And that's how I found you. And I appreciate you writing back. And we really appreciate you coming on the show. Absolutely. Yeah. It's been so much fun. You're such a, a fun person and full of fun information. And uh, a real significant contributor to history. And thank you for that. Yeah, thanks. It's been really nice. And I'm glad you invited me. Um, Like I said, I thought your podcast seemed really fun. And I enjoyed like kind of your casual conversational attitude. Because those are the podcasts I really like to listen to. So we have a great time doing it. Derek and I have been friends for a long time. It's a lot of fun doing this with you, Dee. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I still continue to learn new stuff, like how you blew up your face with a glass bottle bomb. So (laughs) who knows what I'll learn next week. Yeah. AKA the secret reason Derek must have a beard. Yes. Thanks so much, Rachel. Yeah. We really appreciate you coming yeah, on. With thank us. you, Rachel. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, have a great rest of the day. We'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening, everybody. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't sure if that was like your full sign off or if you were just going to stop. Oh, yeah. right. we, we, we fizzle out. Yeah, we just kind of fizzle out. Yeah. We don't really have like a, an ending. So we will yeah. end it now. Okay. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> have a great day. Bye bye. Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. So yeah, now it's very easily researched because I put it in a book. Hey, this is Mike. Thanks so much for joining us. We really, really do appreciate you. And we hope you're enjoying the show. Derek and I sure have a ton of fun doing it for you. If you'd like to support the show, that would be great. Um, You could follow or subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast app. Uh, Also, if you want to like the show or leave a good review, that would be cool. Let us know we're doing a good job. We'd appreciate it. Uh, in most podcast apps, you can also click the little bell icon thing, and that means you'll get a notification on your phone every time we put out a new episode. So that's kind of cool. Also, if you want to reach out and say what's up, we'd love to hear from you. You can hit us up on Twitter at Derek and Mike Pod. We're also on Instagram as Derek and Mike, or you can go to our website, DerekandMike.com. And if you want to go super old school and antisocial, you could even shoot us an email, info at DerekandMike.com. Thanks again for listening. We really, really do appreciate you, and we look forward to talking to you again next time.